and very welcome to a new committee meeting. This is our 107th meeting today, and it is entitled Cancel Unculture. Well, we are in an atmosphere of cancel culture. Everyone who actually raises a dissonant voice in this cacophony um, governed by the government uh, uh, is actually immediately hushed up or should be hushed up immediately. And we can see this uh, in many uh, positions. We see it with doctors, with teachers, public servants uh, who are quickly suspended from office and uh, they're trying every trick in the book to uh, make these verses unheard, to stop them from ringing. Later, we will also present an example of such cases, and uh, this is uh, a, an unculture that we're experiencing, and everything we experience here is a massive uh, phenomenon. Um, this is a killing of cultural achievements such as music, theatre, all of uh, that uh, has suffered so much over the past two years, and uh, which is allowed to revive somewhat. But if the attitude is wrong, then um, it's quickly done with all of those freedoms that are um, generously granted until the next uh, uh, story comes up, the monkeypox or whatever will come up in autumn. Well, we have a very special example this week um, that we were reminded of in terms of unculture, and that is the incidents about uh, Judge uh, Christian Detmar from Weimar, who um, actually pronounced uh, this uh, verdict uh, in a, um, a case uh, where a child was uh, menaced uh, by tests, by social distancing and the mask mandate. And this was proven by a number of expert opinions, and it was the first uh, ruling passed by a judge based on expert opinions, uh, evidence-based um, expert opinions. And um, it was said that uh, this was a violation of law and um, there were some investigations done um, in this case of perversion of law. and. Um, this uh, then was uh, actually accompanied by several court decisions of various courts involved because uh, there was a similar ruling to be taken at another court whether this was now a case for the administrative court or whether this was a case for the jurisdiction of the family court. To my mind, the family court would be responsible because it has completely different preconditions and uh, can actually decide in such a case without involving major costs for the families involved. And the, whereas the administrative court proceedings uh, put up many obstacles, thereby uh, preventing the actual uh, protection for children. The children are actually uh, unprotected 
in the face of uh, state actions or government actions. Well, uh, the whole story now um, has caused quite a bit of a stir when this um, ruling was passed by Judge Detmer because uh, many people were pleasantly surprised to see a judge actually apply this uh, uh, law. And uh, then there was a massive intervention. Um, not only court Detmer's uh, office was searched, but uh, the experts were searched, uh, even people not involved who only knew the the judge who uh, greeted him um, uh, or were friends of uh, Judge Detmer. So this is uh, quite adventurous. So there's another escalation uh, stage reached. Uh, an action has now been brought before court and this has been made public. Do you know the state of affairs, Heiner? Well, the attorney of law has uh, filed a claim and the question now is whether the court will admit that claim to the main hearing. This is another possibility for the German legal system to prove it's still working. We have pointed out the um, uh, verdicts where German prosecutors of law um, do not uh, carry out international search warrants because the concrete uh, point is always that there is a political background. For example, Olaf Scholz uh, tells the attorney of law um, to uh, follow up on him. Um, for example, in the Wirecard case, this is always something, this is why um, this really doesn't make much sense. The question is whether the judges are on the same way. They are moving to the same senselessness as they have been seen before. Um, if I discuss this here in the US, the colleagues cannot believe in it um, if, when they see that since 80 years, nothing has changed. There was just a little layer of furnace going on, but a little scratch uh, is able to bring it all down. And we have a legal system which is completely irreparable. I'm quite sure of that and that's why we need to redo the whole system but um, to work here with the claim to pervert the law um, for every layman who is just seeing this um, as uh, very severe crimes not being followed up I'm just uh, reminding you of my own um, proceedings uh, that I um, had 20 years ago against judges, judges who got paid by the banks uh, that I was up again. And they had to decide on the cases of these banks. And uh, in the context of so-called scientific conferences, they uh, conferred with the banks prior to the verdict uh, to see what opinion they have. And we have uh, um, 
witnesses who swore this under oath, and you can't see it in a more clear way. And if you see this is done in the favor of global corporations and nobody cares about it, and then on the other hand, you have these little cases. Somebody just did their job. They didn't even have to show certain braveness. That's the consequence. And then you really don't need to wonder if Germany is just seen as a banana republic with a facade that is kind of standing up against the wind. Um, but that's about all. More and more people see this, recognize this, and that's what's going on. But there's good news as well. But to, to conclude this, um, we will have uh, a closer look at it, and we suppose uh, that uh, that on the part of the attorneys of law, this pre these proceedings will be opened. But this is a case of perversion of law, and we will therefore have a closer look and have already decided uh, as the basis uh, to actually uh, bring an action before court. And then I'm excited to see what will happen. Maybe nothing, but this would also be a historic historical document of time that uh, double standards are applied here. You have something positive to note. Yes, I wanted to um, start with a positive note. We need to do this from time to time, which is in Dutch court. Uh, we have a short notice on this. A Dutch court has just uh, ruled that the question with pilots, KLM pilots, um, cannot be asked for their vaccination status, which is uh, a uh, part of bullying here. If you see this, could I read this out? Well, the VNV is delighted at the decision taken by the Esadam Appeal Court that it actually prohibits KLM with immediate effect to ask the pilot candidates about their vaccination status and to use this to deny a job. The VNV supports the government position that vaccinations are important, but should not be uh, employers should not be allowed to inquire about them. So they were referring to the question, I don't understand this. They felt that the KLM did not comply with this and also violated our agreements without a um, operational necessity. Well, the court uh, ruled today that uh, through the attitude of KLMN and the violation of the rights of uh, applicants is unacceptable because this operational necessity couldn't be proven. The court said the importance of KLM to, in, uh, to um, negotiate and conclude business uh, is given and it does not outweigh the rights of pilots. All the more as the VNV, and this is the representation of the pilots that there are alternatives where the candidate pilots can be measured by um, such as the execution of tests, uh, which of course also can achieve the aim of uh, effective planning. Uh, with um, um, 
the, the court actually prohibited KLM with immediate effect to actually deny candidates or um, actually uh, decide on the fact of whether a pilot is vaccinated or not. If KLM uh, can prove that this might cause operational problems because of future restrictions, then there can be decisions uh, sought. So you must not ask them and they cannot prove either whether you're vaccinated or not. This is great. This is one step in the right direction. Yes. Absolutely. And I think now we shouldn't keep Tissa Laurie waiting for any longer. Let me allow to introduce her. We have gerade über die Tatsache gesprochen, dass das deutsche Rechtssystem irreparabel kaputt ist, dass wir ein neues brauchen. Und diese das ist die Überleitung quasi zu Ihrer Präsentation, denn Sie sind ja bereits dabei, in einem neuen Gesundheitssystem zu arbeiten. Oder Sie haben das ja schon aufgebaut, eine Alternative, eine Alternative zur WHO, das ist der World Council for Health. In Childbirth, you're the director of the Evidence-Based Medicine Consultancy Limited. You founded the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development, the Bird Group, I think. And you're a steering group member of the World Council for Health and a consultant to the World Health Organization. Are you still a consultant to the World Health Organization? No, I'm not. Um, I am. Um, my last contract ended on December 2021, and I've informed them that I won't be able to work any further uh, with the team that I was working. Very interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Um, tell us what you have to tell us, because I, as we spoke before the before we went live, um, it is extremely important for us, for all of us um, on an international level to have an alternative, a real alternative to the World uh, Health Organization. Thanks very much, Rana. It's really a great honor and I'm very grateful to be speaking with you today. I thought I would just take you through the journey from, you know, how the World Council for Health has come to be uh, and, um, you know, and the, the why. Uh, it's necessary. So uh, if I could share some slides, that would be great. Sure. So um, as you've mentioned, um, I'm, I'm the director of the Evidence-Based Medicine Consultancy Limited and also the CEO of EBMC Squared, which is a non-profit company that was established last year to support mm -hmm. Um, the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development Group, and it also manages World Council for Health. The work that I used to do for as a consultant to, world, to the World Health Organization um, was evidence synthesis and guideline development. So my expertise is in supporting international organizations to uh, develop recommendations for clinical practice and evaluating bodies of evidence. And this is some examples of my work. The reason why my company and my work has been valued um, for many years um, and my contracts with World, the World Health Organization go back to 2012 is because we have no conflicts of interest. We have no shares in pharmaceutical companies and um, we have no all, all grants um, from any, any um, uh, corporations whatsoever. My entry into the COVID arena, because I, I was not involved in any of the World Health Organization's work on COVID, 
um, was when I saw Dr. Pierre Corey's video testimony to the American State Senate asking that ivermectin be approved for use for COVID. And this was in December 2020. I knew that um, colleagues at the World Health Organization generally go on leave over the period after Christmas. And this was when I saw his video. And so I did what I would usually do, um, uh, or, or in fact, what was what was um, called called for in, in a pandemic, because at that time there was a lot of data coming out suggesting that there were many deaths from COVID, um, was I did a rapid review of the best evidence and, um, and I wrote it up in a report. Now, there are guidelines for sharing um, evidence, uh, sharing research in a public health emergency that were drawn up in 2015 during the Ebola crisis. And, um, and these guidelines say that the onus is on the researcher to disseminate information through pre-publication mechanisms. I tried to submit this to the British Medical Journal at the time, but um, they were not, they were clearly were not going to facilitate it. So I published it on my website and I sent it to World Health Organization and also to the UK authorities. In case you don't know what ivermectin is, it's a, it's a generic medicine. It's been around for about 40 years. It's part of the, there's a program that disseminates it in uh, developing countries to combat onchocerciasis, which is a kind of worm. And uh, it's been used, um, there's, well, as you can see from this latest poster from the Mectazan, um, uh, it's, it's a sort of donation program. It's been, there's 11 billion tablets that have been shipped and, and they've treated about 5 billion people. Uh, on the World Health Organization, it's, con it's on the essential medicines list and it's considered to be safe and can be used on a wide scale. And so you may also uh, be aware that in 2015, its discoverers won a Nobel Prize for medicine because it's been such a useful medicine. And it's, um, it's, uh, it really uh, ha, ha, could, could be explored much further. So I didn't get any, any response and, and, and I began to get rather worried. And so I made a video message to the UK Prime Minister just to say the good news is we have effective treatment for COVID. And this was in keeping with the 2015 document um, of the World Health Organization about sharing evidence in a public health emergency in that we have a fundamental moral obligation to share results whichever way we can. Um, at the same time that week, I was introduced to Dr. Andrew Hill through Pierre Corey, Dr. Corey, and I discovered that the World Health Organization already had a consultant working on the evidence on ivermectin. Um, but they weren't doing a Cochrane review, and I knew that you know Cochrane reviews were the standard uh, approach to um, to guideline development at WHO, and certainly in the teams that I work with there. So I asked Dr. Andrew Hill if he would like to co-author a Cochrane review with our team, and we put together a strong team of very experienced reviewers. We've done 120 Cochrane reviews between us, um, although Andrew Hill hadn't done any, to my knowledge. Um, and um, we invited him to join this strong team. And that was the 14th of January. But to my surprise, he published a, a, a preprint um, that was quite raw uh, on the, on the um, 18th on a preprint server. 
And his findings were that there was a 75% reduction in mortality with ivermectin and with favorable clinical recovery and reduced hospitalization. So the findings were very positive for ivermectin. But his conclusions were a bit strange because they said um, larger, random, uh, larger control trials, randomized control trials are needed before um, rigorous evaluation of um, ivermectin can be done. So I called him up and I said, I'm very surprised by this conclusion. It doesn't match the findings and the paper is very poor. Um, and it's up on, on the preprint server, it's going to be used and, and ivermectin is going to, you know, it's going to take ages for it to be approved and we're in a pandemic. So this is a snippet of a conversation that I recorded with him uh, of the meeting. Let me just, oh, hang on. Sorry, it's not playing. Let me go back. Um, I think probably starts around there. So who helped... Who helped to who whose conclusions are those on the review that you've done? Who's, who's, who's not listed as an author who's actually contributed? Well, I mean, I don't really want to get into. I mean, it, the, I think the it, needs to be, it needs to be clear. I would like to know who who are these other voices that are in your paper that uh, are not acknowledged. Does Unitate well, okay. have a say? Do they influence what you write? Unitate has a say in the conclusions of the paper, yeah. Okay. So um, so who is it in Unitate then who is sharing the, the, the who is giving you opinion on your evidence? Well, it's just the people there. I, I, don't I thought Unitate is just a charity. I, is, it, is it not a charity? Yeah. Actually have, so they have a say in, in your conclusions? Yeah. So I was really shocked by that um, because I had never um, so clearly witnessed um, what is scientific misconduct. And um, in the same Zoom call, he said, six weeks and we'll be there. It's just going to take six weeks. And then uh, I, I, he was going to help Ivermectin get approved. And, I, and he was doing everything he could to get this drug approved, that was also, um, but, and so I thought, well, you know, um, well, we had no choice but to give him the benefit of the doubt, but it, I became increasingly concerned because I saw that his tweets that had been very positive on ivermectin um, were being, started to be removed from, from Twitter, were being deleted, uh, where he was saying, you know, things like, it's difficult to see how a bias assessment could change such consistent treatment effects. And he was saying that, you know, mass vaccination plus ivermectin treatment was the way forward. And he also, there was another quote where he basically said, um, you know, we should be stocking up on ivermectin. So, um, so what did we, what did I do? I had this terrible sense of, of, um, of, of concern because it meant that paper was out there. It meant that no one was going to be using ivermectin because the WHO paper said it shouldn't be used, even though that paper wasn't peer reviewed and it wasn't, um, and, and it was a very poor paper. It was still there and it was being quoted. So um, I did what we would usually do at WHO when we, when we do um, 
these guidelines we and make recommendations, we actually put together what's called an evidence to decision framework. So it's not just the, uh, it's not just a, a systematic review of whether something works or not that's considered. There's a whole lot of other factors that are considered and it's put into this into this document and all of these things are considered. So this is the, the handbook that I usually use as a, a, a for guideline development and the evidence to decision framework includes evidence on the benefits and safety which would be from a systematic review but it also includes evidence on values and preferences what do people think um what is the resource use is the is the intervention or drug is it cost effective um and uh, and um is it um and, and what about equity is it a fair intervention um can everybody access it use it um you know does it help uh, vulnerable people um is it acceptable um and uh, is it feasible now with ivermectin it was already widely used it's a very acceptable very feasible intervention it's a very fair intervention it's a very cheap intervention and people are happy to take it and it's a good alternative to injections so on all of those things it um really everything was in favor of of giving ivermectin a go so we put this document together um, I presented it in a panel. Uh, what I did was, um, like with the World Health Organization meetings, when they have these guideline development meetings, they invite uh, stakeholders from, uh, from, uh, from different organizations and from around the world to come and hear the evidence and then, um, and then help uh, and make a decision on whether to recommend or not to recommend or whether to recommend in certain contexts. So um, the meeting was held. We had about 65 people attend, um, professors and various and doctors and scientists and also members of the public um, from 15 different countries. And um, the evidence was presented to them. They, they um, voted in a very transparent process, which is still available and can be watched on YouTube, amazingly enough. Um, uh, and um, the re recommendation that came out of that meeting, which was held on the 20th of February, was that this panel recommends ivermectin for prevention and treatment of COVID. So the, the instruction and output of that meeting was, please put this together in a document and um, share it far and wide. And that's what we did. Um, we shared it with the World Health Organization. We shared it with the FDA, the NIH, the UK's MHRA, the South African authorities, Canadian authorities, and um, and we got no response, but we there was uh, increasing pushback uh, in the media about ivermectin and from these agencies. Uh, in addition, uh, from from Merck itself, so Merck was the original patent holder of ivermectin, but ivermectin is a generic medicine now. Any company can make it, and and it basically costs less than three cents to to manufacture a tablet. So. Um, the you know the it's a, so Merck which has competing molecules, um, competing drugs for to treat COVID um, and and prevent COVID, um, came out with a statement saying that there's a concerning lack of safety data. Now, in actual fact, Merck had been the the you know they'd done the original safety studies and and, and in 2002 they showed that ivermectin was safe even at 10 times the the usual dose. So um, so this was very concerning and clearly a conflicted statement that then began to be used by these health authorities and and of course we also had um you know i'm sure people will remember that 
uh, there was suddenly this flurry that ivermectin is a horse medicine and shouldn't be used by people, which is totally um, uh, erroneous, uh, especially considering that ivermectin is a, uh, a medicine that's widely used, used by billions of people around the world and, and has won a Nobel Prize for doing so. So then in March 2021, well, we, we, you know, we were disseminating this, um, this uh, bird document, which, um, Raina, I've submitted to you. So if you wanted to link it uh, on your website so people could see how, you know, what it, what it entailed. Uh, and also it's got the voting process and so on. Um, while, while we did that, well, uh, the World Health Organization came out with this uh, therapeutics and COVID-19, uh, this guideline document, where they said that the evidence on ivermectin was very low certainty and uh, it should not be recommended outside of a, of a clinical trial. Now, there were many issues with the evidence that they used. It, they didn't use um, Andrew Hill's review. They used uh, what's called a network meta-analysis from McMaster, and it was full of contradictions and errors. Um, these are just a couple of the contradictions um, here. This, I won't go into, uh, but basically, what this mortality data shows is an 81% reduction in deaths. So their data showed an 81% reduction in deaths, and yet they said um, that uh, they were very concerned uh, with, uh, about um, imprecision and, um, and, and uh, that the evidence was uncertain. And then they showed no evidence of serious adverse events, but in the text here it says ivermectin may increase the risk of serious adverse events. So those are just some of the contradictions, but there are many contradictions and it was very poorly conducted again. So again, you know, there were warning signals. There's something really odd going on here. And what could this be? Um, is, is the safety of ivermectin really in question? Well, no, it's not because we know World Health Organization has it on its essential medicines list and those medicines are safe and, and can be widely used um, there were independent expert toxicology experts reviews that reports that came out also in 2021 showing that um, the safety profile of ivermectin is excellent and uh, ivermectin uh, human toxicity cannot be claimed to be a serious cause for concern. And in the UK, we had, we've got um, uh, Chris Whitty, who's, uh, who was the, the chief scientific officer saying in 2010 that uh, doses up to 10 times the approved limit are well tolerated and that it's proven to be safe. So there was really no reason for it to be uh, considered unsafe. And uh, on the WHO's own um, database, pharmacovigilance database in February last year, ivermectin had, was a, had you know, since 1992, uh, there were data on ivermectin showing less than 5,000 adverse event reports and already with the COVID vaccines and remdesivir, there were far more. Um, and, and, and those two drugs had only been around a year. You can see there were 84,500 reports in February last year um, relevant to the COVID-19 vaccines. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it, it really led me to look at what are the conflicts of interest in this World Health Organization guideline process? We had um, Liverpool University producing a conflicted paper, and, and that university is invested in lipid nanoparticle technology, and, and um, this, um, there's, a, there's a chap there called Professor Andrew Owen, who's, um, who's, been, who's been shown to have, some, uh, ha to have had some input uh, on that uh, Andrew Hill paper, and he's in many, many um, regulatory uh, 
processes, not just, um, he wasn't just involved in the World Health Organization review on ivermectin or guideline, it, he was also, he's also involved in the UK uh, health regulatory processes on ivermectin. Uh, then there's McMaster University, which has conducted a problematic together trial, and we're still trying to get data um, from that trial and figure out how it was actually conducted. Um, and uh, and McMaster's also is invested in COVID vaccine development. So what 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 was evident was that there was individuals and universities with vested interests in the COVID pharmaceutical industry, and they were deeply involved in the World Health Organization recommendation on ivermectin, i.e. not to recommend it. Um, this is a photograph I found yesterday when I went onto the McMaster website, and it's not surprising to see that uh, Uni University of Liverpool and McMaster University are signing a partnership to advance research and training in pandemic preparedness, because there certainly is some uh, uh, common link there that needs to be um, investigated. Um, and Tess, of course, Tess, isn't um, Jeremy Farrar, isn't he also a lobbyist, one of the chief lobbyists for, for the Wellcome Trust? Yes, I'm not sure if that was Jeremy Farrar, that's David Farrar, so I'm not sure if they're uh, oh, okay. related. Yeah. Um, so, okay. and, and then of course, um, the, you know, the biggest conflict of interest that, that just one cannot uh, ignore is the World Health Organization's ACT Accelerator. This is Access to COVID Treatment Accelerator. They were looking at raising $38.1 billion to support its COVID uh, activities, the you know the the testing, um, the um, the uh, vaccines, the new health systems, and so on. So so um, if there's a safe, effective treatment, then none of that machinery is necessary. Um, and ivermectin was one what was and is a safe, effective treatment that could have been implemented in 2020. In which case. As I say, none of the testing, none of the the um, uh, vaccine passports or the vaccines would have been necessary or indeed um, even um, permitted. So, so what what's happening now with this? We've got all these independent scientists and journalists who are working on exposing this fraud. We've got a civil society group called Bon Sens in in uh, France that commissioned a forensic analysis of the text of Andrew Hill's paper in March 2021, and the findings of that report um, show that it's highly likely that there were two or three shadow authors involved in manipulating the text of that report specifically to undermine the positive evidence on ivermectin. And then we have um, investigative journalist Phil Harper, who since exposed the role of Professor Andrew Owen at Liverpool University in Hill's papers and in decision-making processes in general related to ivermectin. And the TOGETHER trial investigators have failed to produce the data. Uh, TOGETHER trial was announced in the press uh, six months ago. So this is, the, you know, this is also highly irregular that you have uh, a press announcement that ivermectin doesn't work from the TOGETHER trial um, nothing, and then six months later, it's published, and we're still waiting for the data because there are so many inconsistencies in that paper, and not only in the results but in the methodology. So um, that is that is a story still to be told. Um, what did we do? We pressed on. We we eventually got our paper published in June last year, uh, and it was although it's one of the top ten papers. Um, our top 10 red papers, uh, it's, I think out of 20 million or so, 
Um, it hasn't even been mentioned in the press. Uh, it went totally under the radar last year, and no one paid any. None of the media paid any attention to it. Um, at the time that it was, it was, um, it, it went, it was published. Um, the principal uh, trial in um, trialists in um, Oxford um, popped up to say they are going to look at ivermectin. In actual fact, they had popped up in January when my first report went out. Uh, to say that they'd be looking at ivermectin and then they'd sort of disappeared off the scene again, uh, only to pop up again in June to say, oh, they're going to look at it. So then they did they did look at it. Uh, they are still looking at it and goodness knows when and if they'll ever report uh, anything. So the, our review was a robust review. We've, uh, we've had it independently verified by others with or without certain studies that were declared in the press to be fraudulent. Um, it's the best available evidence on, on uh, ivermectin for COVID. And um, it, it, it's, it's um, been under fire, just like many uh, scientists and doctors who have published studies on ivermectin. Our review has also been under fire by a particular group uh, of uh, four or five uh, from, um, uh, who seem to have met online apparently, um, and um, the first author of the study that was published in Nature Medicine saying that ivermectin, um, that, that meta-analyses are unreliable, um, is uh, the first author is this chap, Jack Lawrence, who is an independent journalist and blogger. So none of the people who have, um, who have been at the forefront of, of trying to undermine the evidence on ivermectin or, or, or debunking it, as they call it, um, have uh, have any apparent long-standing experience or expertise in systematic reviewing. And yet these are the individuals who have been called upon by the BBC and The Guardian and other um, uh, members of the Trusted News Initiative to, um, to discuss the evidence on ivermectin with the public. So I think it, we have to discuss this document. This is the document from 2015 um, that um, it, was, it, was a, it was a statement arising from a WHO meeting um, during after the Ebola crisis. And, and, and what it is, it's, it's about developing global norms for sharing data and results during public health emergencies. Now, it's a very important document because what it does is it, it highlighted the these key points. It said researchers should weigh public health consequences of withholding results. Every researcher has the fundamental moral obligation to share preliminary results. Open data sharing is needed using pre-publication platforms, i.e., you know, we should use these, these, um, these preprint platforms as opposed to, to published journals because it takes so long. Um, that sharing of population-based data should be strongly encouraged. Public disclosure of data should not be delayed. Now, I mean, this is interesting in the context of, of both the TOGETHER trial and also the Pfizer, the Pfizer trials and all of that, um, where they're asking for 75 years to share their data. Um, researchers are responsible for data accuracy of preliminary results. Incentives for sharing data should be created and the risk of withholding data must be taken into account. There are others which also are, you know, the, the green ones, ethical, um, Sorry, oops. 
you know, ethical requirements and informed consent must be respected. So um, there are lots of things, I think, uh, when you think about the COVID processes um, with the sharing data in the last year or two, um, where, where this has failed abysmally, and not least with ivermectin. So who were the people at this meeting in 2015? Well, there were representatives of big pharma, so J&J, &J, JSK, the vaccine companies, also International Federation of Pharmaceutical Manufacturers, and, and uh, Synthase, Sanofi. Um, there were journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, Nature, the British Medical Journal, and PLOS journals. Now, any of the any uh, researchers who've been trying to get anything published on ivermectin or anyone involved in the ivermectin story will recognize those journals as journals that have that have tended to publish things that undermined uh, ivermectin or negative studies. And the universities at the meeting were Imperial College London, Oxford University and McMaster University. Uh, private foundations, the Wellcome Trust, Bill and Linda Gates Foundation, there were public health agencies and the US Department of Defense. So. These were the people, uh, these, these organizations were, were discussing what to do in the next pandemic and how to share, uh, how to share, how results should be shared. And, um, and there was also a journal consensus statement, which said journals should not hinder the sharing of data that could help mitigate the impact of such emergencies, and they should not penalize and indeed should encourage or mandate public sharing of relevant data. So we have seen with ivermectin um, journals um, hindering, absolutely hindering the sharing of data, absolutely hindering the publication and in actual fact pulling down um, uh, studies that have been published like we've never seen before. Um, it's been absolutely unprecedented um, that um, papers have been um, withdrawn, retracted, criticized and so on. Um, and delayed and 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 delayed pub publications so what is the significance of this this document from 2015 well it's facilitated the early dissemination of big farmers results in the media you know like uh, like the together trial being published in the press and many of the other new drug trials and uh, the new drugs molnupiravir um sotrivimab all of those they're published in the media first and we hear that they that you know they prevent something by 48% and then the next thing they're approved um, uh, under emergency use authorization. It's also facilitated publication of big farmers trials in favored journals. So these have generally been published really quickly and often in, in those journals uh, I mentioned. It's facilitated the emergency use authorization of remdesivir, molnupiravir, uh, Paxlovid and the COVID-19 gene-based therapies without independent peer review and adequate safety data. But for ivermectin, the same journals have published only negative studies and they've hindered the study publication and they've discredited scientists reporting positive results. And this is an example. Uh, the New England Journal of Medicine um, has, uh, you know, it's published papers that show that experimental vaccines are okay for children, experimental vaccines are okay for pregnant women, remdesivir is okay, but ivermectin is not okay. Uh, and, and, um, you know, I don't think I need to say anything more there. So why did the World Health Organization global norms not apply to ivermectin? Ivermectin is a safe, effective and cheap Nobel Prize winning medicine. Well, it's because in my opinion, there would be no pandemic or emergency use authorizations or a COVID um, pharmaceutical industry if ivermectin had been approved for COVID in 2020. 
So what has happened to that document that, I, that I've been speaking about? Well, it can no longer be found on the website. I have been using it. I used it in many of my presentations last year to highlight the fact that according to that document, ivermectin should be, should be authorized at the very least, uh, given emergency use authorization like the new um, drugs that were being offered. Um, but um, the page has now been, it's now been taken down. And, um, and I think, you know, it would be used, it would be useful, it would be used by many others, I think, uh, to point out the limitations uh, with the with the vaccine trials too, because um, certainly all, you know, we, there is, there are those, those points about um, uh, not delaying the disclosure of data, which are relevant to the vaccine trials. So, so what did we do? So, you know, there we were, it just seemed like there was this this huge um, pushback to this huge suppression of early treatment, and and the public were not being reliably informed because um, of the um, the they seem you know the, the the propaganda they were receiving through the media um, and um, because of the of the stranglehold of these uh, regulatory bodies. Um, so we we formed a, a not for profit. A company called EBMC Squared, and um, and the activities of the company are funded by by donations. Um, we we um, continued to to lobby um, governments. We wrote joint letters with the Frontline Critical Care Alliance in the US to explain the evidence, to highlight the evidence to governments. Um, we sent the the evidence to decision framework to many many governments around the world to help them uh, uh, appreciate that there were alternatives to to vaccines um, and uh, and indeed that there were that there was treatment available because many many countries weren't actually you know it was taking a while for the vaccines to reach them in any event uh, and um, and everyone was just sitting uh, you know waiting um, for, for to get their vaccines and not realizing that COVID was actually treatable so we held World Ivermectin Day on the 24th of July last year. Um, we also held an excellent um, international Ivermectin for COVID conference in April. Um, and those uh, presentations are, are available still on the BIRD website and also uh, on YouTube on the EBMC Limited YouTube channel, which is, which is very under, un, underutilized. Um, because we were we were getting a lot of um, our posts um, removed, so um, but but those posts are there, and it's an excellent um, and they're still highly relevant. Um, our doctors presenting their studies um, and uh, and other things on ivermectin, should anyone wish to see it. But we but we still was we 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 were not getting any response from the authorities, uh, and it was we were just caught in this endless cycle of. Of writing to them, explaining, sharing the evidence, uh, and we were not in, in the UK. We were not getting appointments to meet with uh, with the authorities, and and um, people were suffering. At the same time, we could see that the in, the COVID vaccines were, you know, the the evidence on the databases for the COVID vaccines was that they were harmful was increasing, and it became apparent that these this new technology, this new type of vaccine was not fit for purpose, and it needed to be stopped. 
And um, and as I say, we were just in a position where we just we, we couldn't get the message out fast enough, and we realised that um, we needed a, a, a bigger platform, and and indeed that an alternative to these corrupt organisations was needed, because we still had uh, the World Health Organisation, despite increasing evidence on their own database that the vaccines. Uh, that, they, that, that there's a signal of harm and that they need to, they need to hold the vaccines. Um, they were still on social media saying, these vaccines are as safe as other vaccines. There's absolutely no way that they could know this because it takes 10 years to develop safe vaccines. And we've, we've only been, uh, you know, and these were rolled out after three or six months. So on their database at the moment, um, we've got 3.8 million reports now on the COVID-19 vaccine. So 3.8 million people have um, reported adverse events to the COVID-19 vaccine. And this is not as safe as other vaccines because if you look at tetanus, which has been around for, for 40 years or so and has um, been given billions of times, there's only 15,000. Uh, and that's the same for, for other sorts of vaccines like um, uh, flu and, and so on. So, so what could we do? So, um, at the, the conference in April, I had made a, a closing speech and I'd said, you know, we really need a, a, an organization for people, not for profit. And uh, I was contacted by, you know, various people who kept, you know, who said, well, let's do this. Uh, and it became apparent that this really was something that was, that was necessary. And so in September 2021, we established the World Council for Health. Um, with the with the, the the intention of there is a better way, and um, and 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 as I said, the, the intention is to to promote health, to help people make sense of what's going on, and uh, and to encourage people to um, to make healthy choices. So, um, at the moment, we have um, we have many committees. They're all run by volunteers. Um, we have uh, expert doctors and scientists in our Health and Humanity Committee, lawyers in our uh, Law and Activism Committee. We have a Bioethics Committee, uh, media and so on, and a, and a growing youth committee too. Um, and we meet weekly. Our coalition partners now number 150 uh, or, or more. They, these are not all of them. We haven't updated this for a while but um, we have partner representatives from across 50 countries, from Australia to Zimbabwe. So what do we do? We provide essential resources. We help people uh, with, early, uh, with how, how to treat COVID. That um, uh, was an, an early resource which has been shared and, and um, downloaded many, many times. Um, we, have, uh, we are helping people who are suffering from side effects from the vaccines. But more than that, um, you know, we are we are promoting health, teaching people about, uh, reminding them really um, about what's good for them, and um, and uh, and engaging them in in becoming active in um, in their own um, in their own health and um, and ultimately in the health of their communities and the planet. Um, we also safeguard human rights in December with the with the growing evidence that um, there's a signal for these vaccines to be withdrawn uh, and independently evaluated. Um, we issued a cease and desist um, notice um, which outlined the concerns around the these new vaccines and um, 
and that they should be um, and that they are unsafe for, for use in humans and that um, uh, they should not be manufactured, promoted or administered. And we've also, um, since March, begun a Stop the Who campaign. Um, many people will know that the, the World, World Health Organization is, um, is, is planning a new pandemic treaty or accord or instrument and um and and that which gives which would give the world health organization tremendous power uh, over individual and national sovereignties and um and this is certainly something that we need to stop so um we also do a lot of uh, collaboration and education and we recently held the better way conference in bath a physical conference which was enormously enlightening uh, i must just stress that our work is not about um investigating like you do everything that's gone on it's very much uh taking a, a taking the position that um this is where we are what is the better better way from here and so it's very solutions focused and really looking at the positive way forward and how can we learn from our mistakes and from the areas of the past two years and indeed the areas of the past decades where we've outsourced our health to, to governments and politicians and um, pharmaceutical companies and not realized that uh, they indeed do not have our best interests at heart. So um, I'm going to leave it there and just say um, that um, uh, World Council for Health really uh, hopes to play and tends to play a, a very active role in in co-creating the better way forward with people um, for a, a better and healthier world. Well, Tess, thank you very much. What uh, what I, uh, the major takeaway from this, as far as I'm concerned, is you have just described a real crime story that led to the creation of an alternative to the totally corrupt WHO. There is, in my view, no other way than to analyze the facts that you told us as a bunch of criminals trying to uh, make it impossible for the people to get the right treatment and instead pushing the wrong treatment, which as we all know, is not only totally ineffective, these so-called vaccines, but also extremely dangerous. Um, has anyone, I mean, I don't think there is any good reason right now to mince words about this. I think we should be, be very outspoken about this, uh, even though maybe we're only talking to each other in our own echo chamber, but some of the echoes reach the mainstream media as well. So I think, uh, unless you're, uh, you disagree with this, but I do think that that's the major takeaway. The reason why it was necessary to create this alternative to the World Health Organization is criminal conduct, in my view, at least. There has been criminal conduct, and I think, I think this will all come out. Um, our focus is not to, to, to linger on that. It's really yeah. to push forward because there is an urgency to help people who have been harmed by these vaccines and, um, and an urgency to stop whatever madness is planned um, through um, monkeypox and whatever else they, they have up their sleeve. Um, so we really are encouraging people to, to, to engage 
and take responsibility for their health and do their do their research and have an open mind when um, when hearing anything that comes forth from from the regulatory agencies and especially in the media because it's clear that that the media certain journals um, uh, and and our health agencies have been captured there and are being influenced by by corporate interests yeah, with, I... Sorry, with uh, with regard to the monkeypox or like a possible new variant of uh, Corona, um, do you already um, see in the the journals that you're monitoring um, sort of like uh, some studies coming up that point into like a direction of a new narrative? Do you know what I mean? Like, sorry, would you mind repeating the question? And my phone was ringing, and and I had to turn it off. Yeah, I was wondering since you are monitoring these, you pointed out these, uh, especially this new, uh, New England Journal of Medicine and others. And I assume that your uh, medical teams are watching closely what's going on, like with regards to new studies published. And I was wondering if you already uh, see things. Um, pointing into a certain direction with regard to monkeypox or with regard to a new narrative popping up, like maybe also like um, whatever side effects or something. I mean, can you see like pre-science kind of of the new I haven't narrative? Seen, um, I haven't seen any studies on monkeypox um, published and, and it is very early for that. But um, there is a concern um, that the, you know, the, the, if you look at the databases of um, side effects to the vaccines, skin and uh, skin lesions are in the top five um, uh, side effects reported. So if, you know, so that's, and, and that's hundreds of thousands across the databases. So hundreds of thousands of people are already having skin lesions reported. So, uh, so it's quite likely because of the, the loose way in which um, the World Health Organization is defining monkeypox and, and, and concerns about monkeypox, it's quite likely that many people might think that they now have monkeypox because um, they're, if they're experiencing a side effect from the vaccine that involves the skin. Um, but that's, you know, I, I don't think that's that's the whole story, and we really have to have to wait and see and be very vigilant about what the World Health Organization says next about about monkeypox. And it and it may be, um, you know, if 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 we consider that the COVID nineteen um, uh, chapter was was the result of gain of function if monkeypox is also going to be a result of gain of function and we have a population of vaccinated people who are immunocompromised because that's what the COVID-19 vaccines do is they actually suppress people's immune systems then it is possible that um, monkeypox um, you know could be could be some a serious concern we we really have to be vigilant and wait and see yeah, but it seems that there are like a variety of um, uh, of narratives now coming up in order to cover maybe also the side effects of the vaccine. I mean, we've also done some sort of um, Wolfgang Budak has already, you know, talked with us in an in a special session about like these uh, possible um, cover up function of the monkeypox and maybe other things that that we can now see. 
Yes, and there was uh, last year, I think around about April uh, as well, or it could have been a little bit later, April, May, June, um, there was a, a, a statement by Tedros about the Marburg virus um, potentially um, being the next pandemic, and which is a hemorrhagic virus, uh, hemorrhagic disease, uh, and also at the same time, or more concurrently, on the Gavi um, website, there was uh, there was a statement about uh, you know what what will be the next pandemic, perhaps Marburg. So um, we certainly have to be vigilant, and and uh, and it you know it could be um, that uh, we are you know we are facing a variety of um, of uh, illnesses that may or may not be due to the uh, COVID side effects of the COVID-19 vaccine. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that that's the case. I'm absolutely convinced that um, the talk about the viruses being a bioweapon is simply um, a, a way to distract our attention from the fact that they created the problem by creating panic, and now they're using the real bioweapon, and that are the so-called vaccines. There's no doubt in my mind whatsoever. But, but the time will come when this is all being cl uh, clarified in judicial proceedings of our own making, of course, because you can't trust the judiciary in most countries anymore. Okay, well, Tess, this is uh, a, a real honor, and I think it was very, very important that the people learn how this came into being, How, what is the backdrop to the creation of the World Council for Health. Now everyone knows there was no other way of uh, solving the problem of uh, having to deal with a totally corrupt organization, totally corrupted um, international even um, uh, scientific journals, but uh, to um, start something of our own. I think you're doing gr a great job here. I, I know I was a member of this uh, conference on May 20th, I think, or 20, the 22nd maybe, and I met a lot of really, really cool people. These are the ones who are going to turn this thing around, plus us on the outside as lawyers and real people, regular people who are beginning to understand what is really going on. And that's what it takes in order to rise up and join the World Council for Health, for example. Thank you so Thanks. much, Tess. Thanks. And I would just like to say thank you very much to all. So I just wanted to say thank you very much to all the people who have donated and supported our work, actually donated time as well uh, over the past um, uh, almost 18 months now, because this w it wouldn't have been possible without that support. And uh, and it's really been such a collaborative effort from, from the grassroots to get this far. So I just wanted to make sure that um, that uh, people are aware and that they uh, that we are very grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. And have a great weekend, Tess. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Okay. Take care. Bye bye. So, jetzt jetzt dürfen wir wieder Deutsch sprechen, Viviane. And we have someone with white hair. He's a comedian. No. It's Wolfgang. <laughs> we have a comedian. Wolfgang is an artist as well. We've got Ludger K. here. Ludger, we have been known for a while, but we never met in person. But I know that you've met my wife in Göttingen, where you had a show. We 
have a little introduction. Maybe I think we should start with a little video of you. Maybe our production team can do that before we have you on the screen. Whoever hears the name of Karl Wauterbrot immediately does not see a face, but a caricature. If we carry on like this in Germany, then very soon the last few critical journalists uh, will only have two publication organs. This is the homeless paper and the prison magazine. It's only a little jab. Oh, with that, you could also say, pull a trigger against your your breast and just say pang. But the measures, they are inhumane and they're not effective. Twelve hours later, the posters with my image actually were dumbed. New ones were printed in the best Germany of all times. Freedom of opinion is holy, but contradiction is unholy. In times of war, the youths are always called to the front to actually fulfill the power dreams of Ultron. Why should the information war be different? Don't be blinded by the light of glory. Dear youngsters, leave it to the old ones to answer. You should ask the questions. Well, I hope my internet is still up. Um, I just wanted to introduce you. Ludger has uh, run over a thousand big variety shows. His critical videos on YouTube have a great supportership. He has won numerous awards. He's been on TVs. He even um, worked at uh, Didi Falafon's Cult Theatre. In the premiere, Corona is and was a brutal censorship because he says, I'm out. We're in a country with more and more contradiction and less and less objection. That is a real challenge. Ludger's new program is a challenge to that doesn't want to agree to exception as the normal state of affairs. He, without um, uh, objection, goes to all um, problems in society following the book classic uh, 1984 where he finds that Geoff Oval drew a doomy picture at the time, but um, with the Twitter page of Karl Lauter, he didn't even uh, foresee that. That means Orwell was an optimist. Um, so uh, a lot of um, humor here, black humor. Um, so you are booked, you were booked uh, for a uh, variété, but before it started, the whole uh, contract was cancelled, including the five-digit uh, payment, whatever the crime was that you had to be committed um, is not uh, uh, provided by the news article um, that reports about this saying because you had questionable contribution to uh, Corona, that's why the theatre uh, split with you and um, on this homepage he uh, posted strong uh, objections against uh, the government uh, and said he won't work under 2G rules. Um, Matthias Rauch is going to um, uh, replace him. Well, we don't want to comment that. Whatever, what can you comment? Um, that is that um, 
breeding space for any stand-up comedian, for people who really want to take a different approach, looking at the facts like you do. How do you feel? How do you feel about this? Do you think it's all shit or do you think, okay, let me take it up and uh, throw it at the wall? Both. On the one hand, I was, of course, not uh, delighted when um, this was uh, really, uh, when it really hit uh, the headlines in the super regional uh, column. But I also found out uh, retrospectively um, there have been lots of critical reviews about me in the past 15 years. Nobody read it, but this was read by everyone, even at the neighborhood uh, festival organized by mom, everybody knew. So if this actually generates popularity, fine, I'll accept it. So um, to me, it was a shock. I'm, I'm perfectly honest with you. On my YouTube channel, I did a uh, brief uh, video without applause, and I made it clear in this video that theater, the theater stage to me, um, deserves protection and, and grace. Um, it, they were the ones saying a few days before the premiere, you're not allowed to host this, we don't like your view of the world. No, it was the newspaper guy who um, didn't cover it. No, it was initiated by a high-ranking uh, editor-in-chief um, by a newspaper. He discovered what I said on the internet and then called the, the stage, the, the theater, informed the uh, theater. I, I, I'm very careful. Um, they informed, he informed the theater. Um, I could think of other words. He uh, got the, the whole thing going and he wrote a commentary on it. And that's the fascinating, fascinating about journalism 2.0. They report and like judges uh, about what they have um, uh, uh, done uh, wrong and what they've really killed. I uh, was uh, actually booked as a, as a host for a family show at this uh, stand-up comedy. And you know me, Rainer. I've, I've got a repertoire um, that allows me to actually uh, stay uh, um, family fit and that I do not necessarily have to present my view of the world in a show where artistry is, is, is shown. And, and uh, juggling is presented. I moderated many shows for hugging. And uh, within the um, uh, framework of this service, the show counts and not you. In solo performances, that's a different story. This is why uh, it was not my fault. I had submitted the text. The director had actually worked with me. And uh, then I said in the video, I will actually appear on stage everywhere, everywhere, like on Gabriel in every in every uh, private garden and this is how I met your wife and had the honor um, but we will talk about that privately <laughs> well she was very enthusiastic wasn't she this uh, stand-up comedy, this variety theater, um, it wasn't afraid initially, but all of a sudden it developed this fear. Um, do we have to depart from the assumption, um, How are they rather critical or were they open-minded and were they afraid that, that, that others would actually not longer uh, visit them either? Well, it is a very lovable 
family-owned company, and you can't expect everybody to be informed in depth about everything in the world like others do. Everybody's only got 24 hours a day. So quite clearly, uh, the overall situation is clear, and um, they are in a fight for survival. And um, if that kind of scenario evolves, let me call it uh, uh, carefully, um, and uh, the pressure builds up, um, people tend to take the emergency exit to save their company. Um, so theater is part of the society which has a positive relation with life and um, uh, sorry, sorry for putting this away after the contract uh, was cancelled. And uh, the critical attitude needs a little longer with some um, other than with others who are sensitized beforehand and may have found out that theoretically something that is in the newspaper may have been a little bit different than reality. Then, of course, in that big uh, topic uh, worldwide, you are sensitized and you don't have to um, take uh, the process over several months like you have seen as well. Um, that was the situation. And to close off with, I can say that um, I offered it um, to the directors. Let's talk again in five years because I think we'll need some distance there's more things that are going to come up and it's not worth now in in the course of this session which is still going on coming back to that topic i think it has to settle down we have to have a proper review and maybe in five years we see things different including me so i i noted that date what about um, the uh, the situation in the community? We had uh, several uh, center comedians at, in the show in the early stages. Uh, we had Marco Rima with us uh, in the very early days, and he lamented that there was that there was little understanding. We also felt this with many artists. Uh, um, what about um, the the inside view? Are there more people? who share the view, but they're uh, still doing compromises to be on the safe side? Well, I am amongst these who are deeply rooted in this artisan art uh, area. I am. Uh, I only got my YouTube channel and uh, I do I can't state um, if I talk to colleagues in different shows, mixed shows, looking at the sides others take, that the level of obedience is extremely high in comedians, with comedians higher than everywhere else nearly. Um, uh, I do think they are very uncritical and they are running the risk of uh, being replaced easily. And there's, there's an issue, there's always a replacement available. And um, when I had the wardrobe talks uh, with people uh, talking in the green room, um, we are not safe uh, anymore because it was so clear where it is going to go and what control mechanisms we're looking at that sends shivers down your sp spine if you look at the 
Facebook comments of people who are smart in the way that they can uh, repair proper German, but uh, out of their own thinking university, a universe, they see everything a red area and they are reckless and merciless. And I've seen this before, but none of us had really appre uh, uh, appreciated what was coming up and foreseen what was coming up. But the scene is in the movement. We are under stress like everywhere else. The sales figures are horrifying for everyone, for the big ones as well. Um, if uh, people played in front of 10,000 people before, now they have an issue is they, that they only sell 4,000 tickets. And with us, we are at the limit of uh, being able to perform at all. I'm not of a great hope that lots of things will change mentality-wise over the next months, but I'm happy to hear about everybody who were played on the my beach of um, uh, observation. Um, some of them, uh, Marco Rita is there, and um, I'm not going to mention all the names of the people who trusted me with that. I have two, two more questions for clarification. That there are so few people attending the shows. Are they afraid of uh, COVID or why is this so? Oh, because they, they, they have this caving effect, they're no longer used to it. I forgot about the second question, but I'll, it'll come back. Well, I'm happy to answer that. Um, it's the question that we all uh, ask uh, looking for the answers. And as always, it's a mixture in life of different criteria. I think, yes, there is a severe fear, uh, a sincere fear of catching it, and the money is not as loose. People have to decide where they want to go. And maybe then they'll take the safe side and rather say, okay, I'll go to the Rolling Stones one, and then that's my 500-year budget. Uh, my, my yearly budget of 500 euros. So it does play a role that in the beginning, uh, the audience was told, we don't want the money back. Um, that was very generous. Um, there was hard, and that's something that the audience is very much valuable for. They were aware of the responsibility that they had against the artists or for the artists, but um, it made the word that there are free tickets in the evening available and now we have the uh, poor times in summer. People go to the beer gardens. We do as well. Um, so now the measures have dropped and we kind of drop into the quiet uh, session, uh, the quiet season. And the last reason, which may be a bit contradictive, um, is the quality possibly of the comedians. And with that, I mean the neutral word characteristics. I'm not saying they're bad people, but uh, the quality of the comedians do not lead to any findings. It's the same bashing and the same pulling down of a certain clientele um, is on the same side of TV and uh, the live shows. So if I can see it on TV, why should I go to the small show around the corner? And that mix of reasons is the reasons. 
I remember the question now. It is quite astounding to see that, uh, especially the people who you would uh, consider to be a little more uh, critical, that there were many, many stand-up comedians that ridiculed politicians, for instance. How is it possible, that's the question, that uh, they don't see through this so well? We don't know if they do or not. Um, they may see through it and not draw the consequences, or they may take the consequence not to take a consequence, uh, because we know that our action um, is not going to be without consequences, and so we can deliberately decide, and I know that many uh, male comedians know that their partners say, keep it down, <clears throat> and they do so, uh, because uh, sometimes it is better for their life, um, and it is a kind of protective decision not to reach out to the open so far and step forward too far out of the line, and everybody's got their own position in society. I, for myself, thought for a long time that the Champions League colleagues uh, made a lot of money over the past years. They should say, yes, at the age that I'm in, with the bank account that I've got, I could simply say, if it's over with my popularity, I will be okay for the next 20 years, but apparently they don't do it, surprisingly. Why? Because they spend more money than we do. Um, I remember a scene which um, was uh, in an old uh, normal where a known comedian in the green room said very sadly, uh, and we asked him, what can we do? And he said, well, my yacht uh, place um, in in my maritime in Andres was cancelled. So this is the type of problem that these people face, and um, so they they have no uh, they have no place to leave their yacht. And uh, so that is something that um, we have to see. There is a certain networking at different levels, and I have understanding that a Monica Gruber just a major name, um, shies away to publicly solidarize with people she doesn't know personally. Um, it's like if I get um, inquiry to go to a show, um, to a place where I've never been, I don't know anything about the people, I don't know what um, title I'll be under, what headline I'll be put into. Um, like with me, in that small world that I'm in, not the big uh, people um, <clears throat> that uh, we network a bit and maybe partner, like the ones at the top do. Um, and I have not lost hope uh, there, and we know if things turn to light, um, uh, people who follow the flow uh, will appear as well. And one last question. Could uh, um, probably the spectators be afraid as well when they watch uh, critical programs, they attend a show in Stuttgart, they're being seen by others, uh, they know that they're watching this. Could this be? Yes, there's this uh, phenomena of uh, contact uh, responsibility. Um, that's been around before. Um, uh, so I can only t talk for my friends um, that I'm in contact with people on one side, um, looking for alternative voices, but 
You don't want to get into uh, alien terrain um, that uh, may blow people over easily. And uh, of course, that's a difficult sign for a society. And um, if I can talk about myself here, I'm quite harmless with what I say. At least I would uh, categorize it as such, but it's enough, a little is enough to um, activate the exclusion mechanisms. And uh, so, uh, well, many colleagues say, uh, I watch him on YouTube, I subscribe to his podcast, but I don't know if I go to see a show live. So there's people and, um, well, I'm, I'm doing fine, really. Um, I had a show last night in a kind of semi-open uh, group, and that was powerful. Maybe it's my task now to join groups and say, uh, I know the wife of Rainer Fulmich. Uh, I'm happy to hear that it is Freiburg, because I come from Freiburg originally, and against this backdrop, is it is of course great to hear that there are not just any that, that something such special is happening there. I have one remark. Um, uh, remembering the GDR, well, back there, uh, artists were laid, uh, allowed to say quite a bit. Um, 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 there were codes used. This is what people told me, and the people actually understood the criticism, voiced quite openly, um, and uh, only very few people were attacked, and nothing really happened to the artists who uh, voice their criticism. The dynamics seem to be different here. Could you phrase that more precisely? I didn't catch the essence of the question. Well, in the German Democratic Republic, there were there was lots of criticism. Oh, no, no, no. There was a lot of uh, unopened criticism voiced. Okay, yeah. I, I, had, I thought you mentioned a, a radio station uh, going on. It's uh, not GDR, WDR. So uh, let's not make much of a difference there between two. Okay, I got it. Um, anyway, sorry, sorry. Maybe it's a, a good, uh, good joke. <laughs> anyway, yes, uh, some of us can be used for a certain time, and they are let through, and. Uh, that has a certain historical echo, let me say so. Um, there's a renaissance of the uh, resistance culture. People meet and talk. And uh, these codes are in our everyday life. They are on stage until they are discovered. And they're quickly discovered at times, if, if you can say, and deciphered and uh, then uh, tabooed and saying, well, that, that's what these and these people say, you can't say that anymore. And um, the attack on language is factually uh, needs a thinking effort. I uh, remember a scene of when Lisa Fitz visited Florian Schroeder who I worked a lot together with in the beginning in my professional career, in the beginning of my professional career, a colleague who was clear that he will get popular at some point in time. And there was a long introduction 
saying that here in the public TV, by no way we reduce the multitude of um, opinions. And it went on for ages. It went on forever. And um, if that were really true, they wouldn't have need to do this big introduction, just saying, look, we got a different opinion here and up on the stage. But no, that took five minutes of introduction for five minutes of different opinions talk. So that's the kind of thing that you need to look out for. And um, of course, then take take your draw, draw your consequences and decide what you um, can get along with. And if you see your own way, follow it. Um, and you can't rebuild the bridge that you have broken behind you. Sounds a bit sad. Well, let's let's go back. Let's uh, do let's do a couple of jokes like the one upon the VDR and GDR. Wolfgang. Hello. Um, is there anything like uh, controlled opposition among comedians? I can see this in medicine everywhere. There are people who say, yes, um, this is all nice and wrong, but uh, COVID-19 does exist and it's a bad thing, isn't it? So certain things are taboo, but apart from that, they're open and also critical and struggle and argue about uh, therapies. But they say that the disease exists. Is this, this is a framing, isn't it? And framing is quite common uh, and I observe it very often in medicine. Well, I know what you're talking about, and I think that's a problem of a society. You see that in your profession, and it reflects in others as well, that there is certain admittance um, to find the smallest common denominator. Uh, yes, I think you said opposition, controlled opposition. Um, if we put that term in inverted commas, it's quite charged. Um, probably you mean that's a kind of floating along. Do the comedians feel that the audience um, does know that there is infections after the fifth injection? Yes, they do, but it's addressed in a different way than it was two years ago. Um, now we really into the stock and that's what people don't really want to do um that's a problem um and we had that years ago already i think 2012 or so i did a show for the greens the green party in germany and uh, they were surprised because they didn't know who they were asking to do a show for them and so i noted as a conservative conservative liberal comedian you can go to the greens and um, do something that they can laugh about and applaud that was uh, globalization criticism at the time, saying that it's not right to buy um, a, a piece of meat for one euro ninety nine and throw it away. And, but that was different. Now we're looking for the basics, really. Uh, we're looking for the basis and uh, um, be political independent. There is a certain dynamics, but it's not really a rebellion in the sense that we can expect now after two years we saw there was a country without measures there was a country with strict measures we compared the two and we do think that possibly um one or the other measure was not quite appropriate 
when you look at the uh, Google or YouTube censorship and censorship on other channels, when you say specific things on those channels, you're in trouble. So they're algorithms uh, acting uh, to uh, identify this and to respond and react. I think it's a, it is, of course, harder when you actually talk to a live audience. Of course, you could install a camera in the room and observe the audience and whoever laughs at the wrong point uh, is suspicious uh, to narrow it down. Do such things exist? Have you noticed anything in terms of social media, any rules? Um, that uh, that you really know what to avoid, which uh, terms not to use. Well, you mean as an allergy to what's going on in real life? Is that is that the focus of the question? What the mechanisms are live, uh, not digital? Well, yes, I can say that uh, my situation is that the audience knows who will be up on the stage. And that's an interesting effect. In the old times, I uh, did shows in well-filled theaters, and people went there because of the theaters. Wühlmäuse Berlin, which is uh, people went to Didi Hallerfonten, a very famous German comedian. And uh, they uh, a quarter of the people knows who's the guy up on the stage. And they say they went there, and there was a funny guy. We don't know who it was somebody telling stories and now I don't need to invite I usually I uh, try to embrace everybody a little bit and then focus it down that's what you usually do you have a base and then you kind of build it up to the peak I don't need to do that anymore but uh, I do find out and that uh, comes to answer your question is that people all of us, that is, have a kind of interval that we work, live in, a uh, behavior interval where we may have a connection to other ways of thinking, sometimes and sometimes not. And um, maybe I can introduce you to an interesting thing that's interesting for any movement. In Variety, we have a show which is the same every evening, the same artist, the same parts of the show. And at some point, I um, got into a fixed wording. In the last shows, I pronounced every single syllable the same. And then you have days where the show is bombastic, and another, another day, it fails. So, you wonder sometimes why was it great on Friday and it didn't work at all on Saturday. The people don't know each other. And I came to an answer which I'd like to offer you to you now, which may be helpful for everything that we do. There, in, a, in any audience, there is a few neuralgic tables, tables of four, six, eight people who are happy, maybe salespeople who know each other, who just uh, had a drink together, who um, worked something. They laugh a little louder, they 
applaud a little earlier and they transfer the atmosphere. If that table is there on Friday, these two tables of eight salespeople, let's call them that, and they're not there on, on Friday but on Saturday, then Saturday would have turned a great show and, and Friday would have been a disaster. So, in the end, <clears throat> we work like this in society. We get pulled along. We can't convince everyone, <clears throat> be it as a stand-up comedian or as any other speaker. You just have to check where are the key points, the key people in the audience, and that does the magic. The the audience uh, uh, sitting there, aren't they, if they're not interested in laughing from the outset, are there any tricks that you can play um, to, to get those going? Yes, you got to identify them and put them aside, block them off. You can do that to a certain degree by getting the other 380 up against those 20 if they want to spoil the show. But that is hard work. Uh, I don't want to pretend that I'm bigger than I am, but I, uh, you do learn how you could apply these skills at a time, but that is tough work. Sometimes you just rush through the, uh, through the, the show um, and you can do your little mistakes um, and the show goes well. But that other thing is precise work, looking who's the guy who wants to stop the show. I was in America once and I talked to um, a, a, a colleague, Collegium, and he asked me, what is Hackler in Germany? And he explained, so if you don't know, this is someone who wants to spoil the show from the audience, somebody who wants to uh, kick the comedian out of the uh, out of the show, and we say there's no German word for that. That says something about German comedy. So, if you've got this hackler, this term has been introduced now to German comedy. Um, we don't think of our own word, so we take the American word. So, if you have a hackler, you have to find out find a way to um, take him out of the show. You can just push them aside, you can get others against them, or you could say there's another show tomorrow and I'll just uh, try to get a draw and that uh, takes it to the next day and may save your night. Um, maybe this is uh, a little bit of a toolbox uh, to how to deal with these people. Well, uh, I really like your perception of such situations. I often experience this in political um, events, uh, but uh, when I now do these giant Zooms, there's always somebody taking part who's only focused on his or her thing without any humor and um, somebody who distracts from the focal theme and he really causes a disturbance. And uh, I think it is great. Um, can't you teach us how to do that? <laughs> Educate us, because it would be really beneficial uh, to everyone, because these hagglers are not really productive for anyone. Uh, in, in, a, in a theater, you can simply walk out. In a Zoom, it's different. Well, it's a capability at the end of a learning process. And I have to say, independent of the condition of my colleagues, there are some great colleagues who master this. 
who master this hard work. And they are often underestimated. Of course, if you are in that uh, pimpered world where you have people who applaud or in TV shows where the sign goes up, applaud now, there are some who can do this very well. And I always recommend people to take this over into life. And uh, I, I see this in Zoom conferences, just like in talk shows. And I think it is a misinterpretation of the word or the saying, you have to take it as a sportsman. Uh, taking it as a sportsman is used, uh, don't take it seriously, we allow each other to talk. But I think that is misunderstood. And um, this is kind of the tolerance in Zoom conferences or political talk shows. Some people misinterpret this as wanting to win. And if you want to win, or accept uh, uh, fouls. Yes, that's really the analogy um, of the game, uh, allowing fouls, provoking foul play, um, getting others out of the out of the rhythm. If you want to win the football game, you see what the others don't like. It's not like Aikido, where you have no winner, where you just um, want to win some energy. You want to uh, win over the other. Uh, Madrid against Liverpool, you know, they're a bit more dynamic in the in the Champions League. They have been better than we are, but we can um, demoralize them by the goalkeeper to have their best day, uh, or not the best day, and we just kick one in out of two. But in the discussion, we don't want to win the discussion, but we want to have a finding, a common um observation that is a much better base and if we want to have a common finding and if that is in a talk show people get overrun and then we get these misadmissions which they get in the media seminar um, or if you don't finish your university course uh, in the Willy Brandt house somebody comes up with a good uh, argument you say that's not the point the point are the people and then you get the audience to uh, applaud and and that is the formal and formula, and that is moving into private section and Zoom conferences as well. So maybe um, I uh, said that you shouldn't misinterpret it, interpret this in that sense. Okay, I'll, I'll, I seem to be the professor here, which I'm not. No, no, we don't teach you. It's a wiseacre. When I look at the uh, comedy scene, then I can see Didi Hallerwart, I just mentioned, who even in uh, on public TV, although he tries to do the high-wire act, he used to operate two theaters. I think one with one he went insolvent. He had a lot to lose, but nevertheless, he made it clear time and again that he sympathizes with our way of seeing things. Uh, for commercial reasons, he had to do this high-wire act. On the other hand, so he's, he's in the middle. Then we've got you, and Nikolai Binner has also been pretty clear, and he says, um, speaks it out loud, and then there's a woman <laughs> whose name I can never remember, and the former uh, husband of my wife really likes her, and I watch her and I say, oh God, she's so boring. She's full of hatred, and and um, against us. And then in the middle, there is somebody that I think is really dangerous, and that's Florian 
Schröder you just mentioned. He actually um, uh, appears like an infiltrated person. You think that he understands us, but at the same time, he still wants to be liked by the mainstream media. I don't want you to comment on this because you cannot actually uh, beat up your colleagues. But this is my vision. This is like he's like a subversive element, and it's, he's very hard to grasp. He does not have a personality. He lacks principles. You don't what you don't know what to take of him. You just know that you can't trust him, which is a shame because he's a talented guy. He's gifted, and he's he's thrown away his gifts. You just said there are some bridges that are so broken that you can never step over them again. This is one view. But when you then look at the reality in the U.S., and I'm traveling by by plane all of the time, and they're packed, packed with people. And then we enter huge conference centers, and they look like ghost towns. Nothing is going on here. They're saying, well, it's coming up again. We're starting. We were revamping. No, no way. This is the... Um, this is 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 the um, quiet before the storm, and if the next storm arrives, that'll be in. And against this backdrop, every human being, also stand-up comedians, will have to fly their flags very clearly. Doing the High Wire Act won't be possible for much more time. There will be a stock taken, and we're very close to that, I feel. I, I don't want to um, uh, accuse anybody of anything, but uh, yeah, I would excuse uh, Florian Schöner, as you just mentioned him. This won't have a positive end. Didi Halavon, you can forgive him many things because he's under pressure, as you can see. But after all, he's 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 there to say something. And then this lady, um, I can't remember the name. She's so shitty. Uh, she's incredibly bad. But Florian Schroeder is a specific case. He reminds me of Gestapo Stasi uh, of officials tries to go with the flow very difficult especially um when you go that we're doing the final count soon quite right Marina, i i got got what you said and i um, didn't want to stop you in your flow of words but the problem is if someone like you um, I mentioned a name again and again and again, and I'm um, visible in a little window. Um, I get caught in liability as well. Maybe you have noticed that I um, do not want to shed any blame here, and I do that deliberately. <clears throat> um, I don't want to mention any names. Um, there is this type of person very generally speaking. Um, as far as Florian is concerned, I got to know a person at the time whom I wouldn't uh, get to acquainted me with today. I don't know. I have no contact with him. I can only tell him he's great in his work to say something positive. He ma masters the art of voices. And, and noted that, that many um, uh, comedians uh, make jokes about themselves. You remember Elmer Brandt, who found um, the figure of Gerhard Schröder. And um, everybody else 
copied him. Like Rainer Kalmont, somebody starts to copy him, and then they all copy the copier. Ingo Appelt uh, started with this, and everybody else copied Ingo Appelt. And um, for Ingo Schroeder, it's the same thing, and nobody can really reach up to him. He's the one who invents the voices, and uh, the other person, you know, I heard that, and uh, I want to make clear, if people who know me listen, um, that I say I'm not commenting, I don't want to, and I cannot, um, uh, talking about that colleague or whoever. And exactly. Yeah. Can this is the reason why I said it, because I felt it was so important to actually make a statement here. But that's that's absolutely okay. Um, we will meet uh, um, privately anyway. I'll soon be back, and then we can actually talk in private. But it's uh, great, the, the, the setting you created here. Um, and I think that there is something completely new emerging right now outside of the establishment. Your uh, performances are taking place outside of the mainstream establishment uh, too. And I think that uh, it is uh, probably far much more fun to perform under such conditions. And I'm sure that this uh, direction will be carried on and something absolutely new will emerge. And I think that it is good at the end of the day. Uh, just the way um, I like to see how the system as such is collapsing. And that in medicine, in jurisdiction, in education, but also in art, that we're actually breaking completely new ground because the old ground kept us, uh, um, shackled us uh, in wrong positions. We had to do the wrong thing. And when somebody starts crying because he lost his mooring and Andrach, well, <laughs> what a problem. Well, maybe that's issues we're gonna, not going to have in the future anymore. Uh, but it's a process. We all feel it that now we are in a phase where things change. If we look back to historical dimensions, um, so, um, not the, the 80 years uh, that we live through, but uh, over centuries, we do see again and again that there are certain phases which are skipped, and they are long. Um, if we go back to ancient history, I even noted this as a comedian, that um, they say, Okay, and in the next four million years, nothing happened. So that's a little skip to the time. So today, 10, uh, 30, 40, 120 years is nothing. And that's where the important turning points out. And then that's where you live. That's where you live, feed your children, and the next generation comes, and then something happens. And now we are in that phase where things happen where life resets itself, where awareness resets itself. And if we want a positive change, there's nothing to fiddle about. Uh, this system, uh, keeping it in the in the survival mode and um, with artificial uh, measures, you really have to say, that's it. Maybe we'll have a, um, a dignifying uh, funeral 
and let's see that we get into a new phase of life. There's lots of good people around, um, but you don't see them. But maybe that is actually the point that um, quality will survive. And uh, at the moment, we hear a lot about uh, the quantity. This is, sounds very general, but I think it's quite precise. I think Wolfgang Vian and you, you know what I'm talking about. You see the world in a similar way than I do. So, well. <clears throat> Well, we've seen it ourselves. In the time after 45, there was also a big gap to be filled. When I uh, did my A-levels and the history lessons, the whole period from 33 to 45 was missing. It was simply not covered. And uh, um, this is why I didn't have to be afraid to be asked about it, because it simply didn't feature in our history lessons. Uh, things take, such things take time, but as a result, our lives in the following decades have developed in such a way that we were able to move quite freely. We've simply ousted this, Bitterlich actually described it with his book quite a while ago. But this is a phenomenon, um, means you actually try to forget about it, to push it aside because you want to survive. This also serves a function in coexistence. Otherwise, you would actually um, beat up people all the time, kill each other if once a mistake has been made. And regarding um, the existence of, of, of a whole people, um, killing each other is, of course, not favorable. This is why I think we have a mentally uh, sane and healthy mechanism um, that served a purpose. And when you then actually criticize this, Let's just imagine um, everybody supporting the criminal actions. Uh, if, if they were all judged, if they were all detained and sent to prison, then you would act, actually have to, to build a huge prison and buy shares in this prison, because this would be a century's business. Um, uh, but it is difficult because it's a very unproductive business. Well, Wolfgang, I think this is also it's good that uh, we um, suppress certain traumata. It is a survival strategy. We have to uh, remember Franz Ruppert, who was with us last week, and uh, that means certain elements are split up, and there's also a part in Psyche that uh, still works, and um, sometimes it uh, uh, undermines what you want to do. I think um, we can't just uh, sweep this under the rug. It's much too big, and we have to go through this, whether it is um, uh, uh, juridically, um, I don't know if we want to put everybody into prison, but we have to really look at how all of this could have happened. That's very important. And I do see this as a massive opportunity to look at the things that uh, happen here at so many levels that for the first time people are actually able to understand the dynamics and that is not just an individual detail and an individual 
mad person who's done things that do something or they did something or didn't question or just uh, slipped into things uh, it's not my part uh, not my cup of tea whatever everybody has to ask themselves what contribution they made even by remaining silent and I think it's very important that if we look at that and go into the details saying this is something that we don't want to have anymore and uh, saying there is a door closing and another door is opening even uh, getting more and more apparent that can be a great opportunity for us for all of us um, but uh, and we have to look at that we just can't uh, put the sheep's coat over the wolf and uh, just leave him uh, as it and uh, tell people who have been in resistance all the time that's not possible that can only take place if people are honest the, the, the Mitchell book, The Inability to Mourn, that was the title. Um, this is what he criticized. The ability to mourn and to, to understand that we weren't able to stop it, that we failed in uh, convincing our neighbors to be even more courageous and stand up and hold the line. We uh, didn't take it seriously for a long, long time. Um, now we've realized that we, we're fighting but we should have started a lot earlier to fight we can only do what we can do and we have to make sure that Steve Kirsch uh, doesn't have to wait for ages uh, I wish that if all of this is over and we are um, see the phoenix on the ashes. I hope it's going to be you and that somebody, uh, one of your um, presidents are there, Werner Fink, maybe you remember that person. If these people stand beside each other, what do you think that stage would be? Well, um, uh, I'm, I'm prepared. I'm uh, not in the in the uh, sentencing or ruling um, mode yet, or the judging mode yet. The, the many, many uh, horrible things have happened in in our community, Viviana. In my community, dear colleagues, I uh, apologize everything. I still apologize everything. All of the bad things I. I read it's no importance the autumn will show us where we are headed there are many many um, turning points uh, winter is coming yeah this will be decisive I'm prepared to t uh, rise up to this challenge and I look forward to to seeing you again for a private chat or maybe uh, just for exchanging ideas oh eating a potato salad <laughs> Uh, with the Royal GV. Uh, the next uh, guest is waiting. Uh, I was really delighted about the invitation. Oh, one more thing. I would be extremely happy if uh, people uh, subscribe to my channel and watch my videos because I'm in it with all of my lifeblood. And there are also topics covered that are not always so serious, uh, that are um, 
sort of a boulevard type um, things that you can also use for other um, situations. So there are some playful observations. This is part and parcel uh, of it because life is beautiful and offers beautiful things to us. And uh, it's worthwhile making a caricature of that. And that's my task. So I'm happy for everyone uh, subscribing to my channel, watching my videos. Thumbs up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you. Life is life is great. That's good. See you. Okay, jetzt uh, machen wir auf Englisch weiter. I'm sorry to keep you waiting and hope it wasn't too long. Um, we have been talking to a very well-known German comedian who was explaining to us how the um, situation with German comedians is, of course, it's the same as in the United States. It's the same as everywhere. Some speak the truth. Some try to stay with one foot in the mainstream arena and with the other foot uh, in the alternative uh, media arena, and others are uh, completely against the uh, resistance. Um, I would like to give, you, give a very quick introduction. You're a high-tech entrepreneur and philanthropist founded the COVID-19 Early Treatment Fund to fund research into off-label treatments for COVID-19. We just spoke with Tess Lorry, who explained to us about ivermectin and how that led to the creation of the World Council for Health as an alternative to the WHO. You were one of two people who independently invented the optical mouse. I'm using one of them right now. And you are also the inventor of the first internet, internet search engine. What you're going to talk about, I find this extremely interesting, is why uh, you think that Todd Callender misinterpreted or misrepresented data since one, can, uh, one simply cannot have a 1,100% increase in disease and only an 84% increase in all-cause mortality about the various analysis, evidence about permanently damaged immune systems, Etc. But I don't want to keep you from saying it in your own words. Uh, it's a great honor. Um, thank you for joining us this morning, Steve. Yeah. Well, I thank thank you for uh, for doing what what uh, you've been doing, which is uh, absolutely uh, phenomenal. So I'm, you know, I'm happy to be a part uh, of this effort to get the truth out uh, to people. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to, to dive into any topics that you want to talk about. I mean, we can, we can start with that uh, insurance company data. And uh, let, me, let me just uh, uh, share the screen here uh, with you. Hopefully, let's see, we'll go into slideshow mode. Uh, and it looks like it's working. So this is a... Uh, a post, uh, a Twitter post that Pierre Corey did a while back. And these numbers are actually very believable uh, to me. And the problem with the, the numbers that you had um, from Todd Callender is that they just didn't make, they didn't add up. They weren't self-consistent. You can't, I mean, most mortality is due to disease. It's not due to accidents. And so if you have diseases going up by a thousand percent, you can't have all cause mortality going up by 80 you know, percent. It just doesn't make, doesn't add up. The math doesn't work. So, but these numbers uh, do make sense. This is um, from uh, US uh, Group Life Insurance uh, Mortality Survey. And as you can see the different, uh, there are different mortalities in different age groups. 
and some of which are uh, like 98%, this would be uh, normal, but then 208%, this would be very abnormal. So you're seeing these abnormal rates, uh, abnormal increases that are happening in very young people. And it's only happening recently, and it's only happening since the vaccines rolled out. So this is the kind of stuff that is really hard for anybody uh, to explain. And so, of course, they don't explain it. <laughs> they, they just say, well, you know, we have this increase and um, it's not due to COVID. It can't possibly be due to COVID. In fact, recently, the numbers are, are also very high. But the problem is that if you actually go and look at what COVID is doing in terms of deaths, I mean, I go to the, um, I'm in, located in California, so to the California Department of Public Health website. And when you do that, you find that the numbers, number killed per day in California is like eight or nine people a day. Now, <laughs> my question is, how low does that number have to go before they stop a state of emergency in California? We're in a state of emergency in California, and only eight people a day are dying. If that's an emergency, you know, I mean, it, it, is, it is just insane what people are doing here and distorting the reality. And, you know, how many people in California know that the death rate is, you know, it's, it's like, does the death rate have to go to like four people a day to end the emergency to three people or two people to one people? I mean, do we have to actually, you know, people, we, do we have to resurrect people from the dead to become live? before we end the state of emergency in California. I mean, no, and the thing is that nobody wants to answer that question. It's, it's you know, like they, they can't answer this. So this is the, you know, I, I think the, the point of this, um, the mortality increase is that, yes, I agree with Todd that there is a significant mortality, all-cause mortality increase. It's like 40%, um, you know, I would probably say, you know, or somewhere on the order of 40% overall. And I think part of that, you know, versus normal, uh, about 20% of that might be due to COVID and probably another 20% is due to the vaccine. In other words, the vaccines are, are killing people, uh, as many people as COVID, but that's not really the main point here. Um, I, you know, I, I have a slide presentation called The Elephant in the Room. Um, which is on my, uh, my, my Substack here. I'm one of the, the top misinformation spreaders on Substack. This is a sort of proof of that. I'm sort of at the center of the misinformation universe on Substack. And of course, MIT has um, memorialized me as, the, as a misinformation super spreader. So I'm not just a misinformation spreader, I'm a misinformation super spreader, according to MIT, which of course, as you all know, is defined as someone who speaks out publicly when the official government mainstream narrative fails to match the reality in plain sight. <clears throat> I hope I'm, I'm not uh, talking too fast for the interpreter. But, you know, the most important thing, the single most important thing, you know, the, it's not the mortality increase. The single most important thing that everybody needs to know is that if they're open to questioning their belief system, then the unexplainable becomes easy to explain. But once you're, if you're not open to questioning your beliefs, which is true for most people, then of course, you have to scratch your head whenever you see data that I'm about to show you. 
because there is no other way there. You have to say, well, this is just simply unexplained. But of course, once you question your belief system, then, then you can explain things. So the question that I have to people is what if what they've been uh, telling you simply isn't true when you check it out. And oh, that's what I've been doing. You know, I, I didn't start off being a, uh, <clears throat> I wasn't born a misinformation spreader. Uh, I only became a misinformation, a, a quote misinformation spreader when after I'd been doubly vaxxed and after my family was doubly vaxxed, then I started hearing from my friends and my friends were saying, uh, my friends were either dying or, um, or dead. <laughs> you, know, you know, you very quickly die from, from, from these vaccines. Or, so they're either dead or they're in severe pain. And I'm not saying that this is happening to all my friends. Um, I'm saying that, that there are people that I know that have died. And I, there are people that I know have, who have been vaccine injured. So the only way you can explain this is if you question your belief system, which is what I started to do after I started hearing these stories. And so I've found out that, you know, the, the stories don't match the facts. And so, so Hannah asked the question, is, is it possible that, what the, that the vaccines are, could be making things worse? And what I discovered was very troubling, that overall, that the vaccines appear to be killing more people than they save. Now, this is important. I'm not saying the vaccines have killed more people than COVID has. What I'm saying is that the vaccines have killed far more people than the number of people who are saved by the vaccine. So in other words, the, um, the risks far outweigh the benefits. And I believe that it's probably somewhere on the order of half a million or more people that have been killed by these vaccines, by these COVID vaccines. And that's just in the United States of America, not worldwide, just in the U.S. And I believe that the, the COVID has killed somewhere on the order of a, a comparable number, and it's probably less. Because when we look at the number of people that are actually killed by COVID and didn't um, die with COVID, or they didn't die, I mean, a, lot of, a lot of people died in the hospital because of hospital mistreatment. They were given remdesivir and they died of liver failure. And so, you know, did COVID kill them? I don't think so. So when you actually look at the number of people killed by COVID, I am very confident that the number of people killed by the vaccines are actually greater than the number of people killed by COVID. But the more important comparison, which is a really important point, is to compare the number of people killed by the vaccine in terms of all-cause mortality, which I believe has been raised by at least 20%. Uh, if not more, um, in, a, in the U.S. and probably worldwide, versus the number of people that have been saved by the COVID vaccines. And the only data that we have that is reliable or semi-reliable is from the randomized clinical trials, which showed that we will save about one life for every 22,000 people that we vaccinate. So if you vaccinate 220 million people, you're going to save 10,000 lives. So let's give them 
let's give them a factor of two. And let's say it's 25,000 lives that they saved. They're still killing at least half a million people. Now, that's a ratio of 20 to one. And this is what I call the elephant in the room. And this is my famous elephant in the room slide that I've shown at the FDA meetings that people don't want to talk about because there's no way to defend this. You can't give an, an intervention which is killing at least 20 people for every person that you might save from the intervention. So I'm not saying it's killing 20 times more people than COVID is. I'm saying it's killing 20, at least 20 times more people than the COVID vaccines will save from dying from COVID. Now, it's a little bit hard to justify giving a vaccine in California, which is the most, which is the largest state in the United States. We have 39 million people in California and eight people are dying a day from COVID and that may be overstated. Now, how can you justify rolling out a vaccine in California if only eight people a day are dying? And how many kids are dying in California from COVID? Why are we vaccinating the kids? You know, I did a survey, and I want to show you um, this. Let me just jump to this in, the, in the, the presentation. And by the way, this presentation is available on my Substack, stevekirsch.substack.com. And if you go into the reference section of the Substack at the top, I'll show you how to do that later. Um, you can go and find my presentations, and this is called The Elephant in the Room. And so all of these slides that you see here and all the references are in the Elephant in the Room uh, presentation, which is on my Substack in the reference section. Now, I did a survey. I wanted to find out for people, for, for kids age 5 to 11, I surveyed um, my, um, my reader base, which is the numbers in you know, probably you know, somewhere in the order of a million people see this stuff. And so I asked people, do you recall any deaths of ages 5 to 11 since 2020? And were those deaths either caused by the vaccine or by the virus? Which would you associate those deaths with? Because you can see, the, you know, the vaccine deaths are, you know, they're, it's like they got the vaccine and they died two days later and they died a week later. So they're pretty easy to spot. Well, 100% of the responses and one of them was a gamed response, but another response reported too. I mean, so I don't just, you know, take these reports and say that they're valid. I, I look at them and you know, there's clearly a, a gamed response in, in, in there, which, which is tragic that, that people would game something like this. But the point is that all of the deaths that anybody could recall in ages 5 to 11, which is, of course, you know, we're approving the vaccine for, were caused by the vaccine. And nobody was dying from COVID. If nobody is dying from COVID in this age group compared to the number of vaccines we're giving, then the number of people saved by those vaccines is infinitesimal. The, the risk benefit makes no sense. It's completely nonsensical. We have gone off the rails as a society. And of course, that's something that you guys know very well. So I'm not teaching you anything that um, 
uh, that you don't already know. So, you know, the the, the one thing, and and we'll get back to the discussion uh, part of this, but I encourage everybody to, uh, uh, you know, to check this, uh, this, this slide deck out. Um, you know, the government reported statistics can be manipulated to make the vaccine look effective when it isn't, uh, or data that's not supportive from Medicare, DMED, VSD, and the best system can simply be ignored, which is what they're doing. They're ignoring what they call their best data sources. In fact, one of the, the, the their best data sources actually called the best system. Can you believe that? They, they actually name it uh, correctly. It is the best system. But you, know, you see, we're not seeing any government numbers from the best system because that would be the best data and would show that the vaccines are unsafe. So people should, you know, people who have critical thinking skills left, which is relatively few of us in America, should be asking, why are we seeing, why aren't we seeing any data from the best system? Well, because it's not supportive. And the CDC admitted that they're not going to let people know about data that doesn't support the narrative. They've admitted that to the New York Times. So people should be concerned about this. You know, and I get emails from, uh, is an email from Merrill Nass uh, about, uh, you know, FDA's new paper claiming myocarditis risk is surpassed by the benefit. I mean, this stuff just simply isn't true. And, you know, she goes into some detail as to why that, that's the case. I'm, I'm happy to opine on that, but, you know, it's basically, you know, you sh- it, the point is you, you need to, you need to have a critical eye whenever you hear these assumptions, because it might be true that COVID has actually killed fewer than 700,000 people in the U.S. It might even be under 100,000. It might be true that masks don't work at all. We could find, I could find no evidence at all that masks worked and found, in fact, I found just the opposite. Uh, early treatment with cheap repurposed drug combos prevent long haul COVID and death nearly 100%. Uh, that's stunning, but they don't want to admit that. And the other thing they don't want to admit is all their interventions were bad and they were never needed. You know, nobody wants to go and have a discussion with me on that. And then, you know, you have to ask, why are the most vaccinated getting the most number of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths? You know, and I go into detail into each one of these in the presentation with references. But the most important thing is the death. Have you ever wondered why they aren't showing us the most reliable data that they have, which is the Medicare data? Have you ever wondered why they need liability protection if the vaccines are so safe? I'm about to show you. This is for the first time. Nobody's seen this before. This is the Medicare data. You can't get this data. You can't get it publicly. It's not available publicly. I have a whistleblower inside the Medicare system that gave me this information. This is the most reliable database. How can you explain a 50% rise in all-cause mortality after the vaccines and boosters rolled out? That's the problem. They can't explain it. You can't explain a 50% rise in all-cause mortality after the intervention that's supposed to reduce all-cause mortality was rolled out. They don't want to explain it. That is why they are never going to show you the Medicare data. They had the Medicare data. 
I got access to the Medicare data because I have a whistleblower who gave this to me. Now, this is striking. They're basically suppressing the data showing the vaccines are killing massive numbers of people. Now, this should be the end. I mean, but the press, the mainstream press is never going to pick this up anywhere in the world. Nobody will even ask the question, like, how come we're not seeing them? People don't want to know. Whenever I bring up any information that is counter mainstream, what happens is that people refuse to read it and they say the vaccines are safe and effective. What's wrong with you? So people just simply don't look at the data. They don't look at, they don't survey their friends and ask, hey, how many, how many kids do you know died from COVID versus the vaccine? I know a lot of kids in this age range been killed from uh, COVID. Now, and it's from what, what I read and because I'm, I'm at the center of this. And of course, you know, the, how do you explain the insurance data? How do you explain the deaths in Massachusetts? Where the deaths in Massachusetts, and we have the death data because it was obtained by Freedom of Information Act request, not because the health authorities want you to know this stuff. You have to find it out on your own. And when you do, you see that the deaths in Massachusetts shifted from being ICDJ codes, which means a respiratory virus, which is what COVID was in 2020. And you see the shift where, oh, in 2021, people are being killed from circulatory issues. It's unambiguous. And again, you know, the references are here. But do you see any health official in America? This is in Massachusetts. See any health official in America, you know, bringing out these, uh, this data? Not a single one. Not the CDC and not the, I guess there, there are somewhere around 1,400 public health officials. None of them want you to know this data. Why not? Because it doesn't support their narrative that the vaccines are safe. It makes them look foolish it, because they're, they are foolish. They are, they are killing people. And in Massachusetts, where we have this death data, do you know how many kids died under 16 from COVID in Massachusetts in 2020 and 2021? Mm-hmm. Zero. Yeah, it's <laughs> zero. Zero. So why would we have a vaccine where we're giving it to all the kids to protect them from dying from COVID when there are no deaths? See, that's the problem. That is the insanity of this. And the FDA says, look, we've approved this because we've given you the perception that kids are dying when they're not. And they're not telling you the numbers. They're saying, oh, it's COVID's a huge risk. You should get it. Are you kidding me? The death rate from Omicron is, is virtually non-existent compared to these other variants. Why would you vaccinate your kids? You would vaccinate your kids because you believe the narrative that COVID is dangerous and you need to protect your kids, where the reality is we're probably killing somewhere 
on the order of 300 or more kids for every kid that we might save. And, and I'm probably underestimating that. It's probably more like we kill a thousand because we're not saving any kids with these vaccines. We're basically killing kids. It is horrible. You know, so I did my own survey of, of, um, of people, um, of, of people that follow me, and I did various surveys. And one of the really striking surveys I did is I asked people, hey, how many people do you know who died the month they were going to get the COVID vaccine? And darn it, it just expired the month before they were going to get that COVID vaccine. And, you know, just bad luck. I mean, it was out there. It was there. They were just so close, but they died before, the month before. And how many people do you know who died a month after? Now, the number is like, depending on the dose, it's like four to one difference, six to one. It's like six to one uh, on the second dose. Now, how is it that the death rate can be different 30 days before the vaccine dose versus 30 days after? So I repeated this. I went to audiences that weren't my followers, large audiences. And I'd ask the same question and say, hey, how many people know somebody who died, you know, 30 days before they're supposed to get the vaccine? Now, of course, that's, that's kind of a harder date for people to know. So you'd expect a fewer people would raise their hand. But, you know, you'll get like maybe one or two hands. And then you'll get like 20 hands raised for how many people know somebody who died 30 days after they got the dose. Now, there's no way you can explain that if the vaccine's not causing the death. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. So, and of course, you know, we have the athletes, um, I'm sure you've gone into to that. And then we have the UK all-cause mortality data that nobody wants to explain. Nobody wants to go on camera. You know, there's a guy, Jeffrey Morris has been, you know, he's got his, his gun set on me to try to kill me, but he won't go in a video debate with me. So the only guy that wants to defend this graph will not do so on camera. You know, and that's true pretty much for everything. No, I'm the guy that nobody wants to talk to because I got a list of about 100 questions that nobody can answer. And my first question that I ask people is, hey, I got a list of 100 questions. Is there any, uh, any one of those questions that you can actually answer and we can have a, have a discussion on? The answer is no. I can't find anybody who can answer even one of the questions that I have. And that's, that, that's the main point. It's not, you know, I don't have to get into 500 questions or 100 questions. Nobody wants to talk about this stuff on camera because nobody can defend this. This shows that the, you know, look at the all-cause mortality rate versus the unvaccinated. The unvaccinated is the line one here. Look at what happens after you've been vaccinated. Six times all-cause mortality rate. Now, that's not the 10 times that your insurance executive said. This is the UK Office of National Statistics showing a, up to a six times increase in the all-cause mortality rate after you've been vaccinated. How do you explain that one? Well, they don't. They don't show you. They just simply don't show you this data, but you can get this data because it's published by the UK Office of National Statistics. Now they're not running newspaper ads, show you this, hey, get vaccinated, increase your all-cause mortality by up to six times. For some reason, those don't make it into the newspaper ads. But you know that doesn't mean that the data is not there. 
you know, and there are all sorts of interesting uh, uh, data points. You know, here is it. Here, here's a, a survey that I did. It's only got 47 votes, so you can dismiss it as not being statistically significant. So why is it, you know, so I asked, do you know anyone who died from Omicron and their vax status? You know, if it's more, if it's more than one death, answer it for the person you know the best. Well, they, 94% said they died from Omicron and they were va vaccinated. There isn't a 94% vaccination rate in the United States. So it's basically saying you're more likely to die from Omicron if you have been vaccinated. I mean, there's no other way to explain this poll. You know, so, you know, cases, you know, in, 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 everybody knows in the UK, you, you get three times more, you're three times more likely to get infected if, you, if you're three times vaccinated. Triple vaxxed, three times more likely to be infected. That's what the UK data is. And they can, they can, they've tried to spin it so that it's not a problem, but they can't spin it. So they just stop publishing the data. And, you know, in the least vaccinated countries. So what's happening in the least vaccinated countries? There are no cases. See, that's the thing. People think that, um, uh, you know, here's the, here's the graph. Here's the graph of the most um, highly vaccinated uh, cases and highly vaccinated people versus uh, uh, Africa. It's Africa. It's the entire continent of Africa. It's a flat line. It's a flat green line. That's Africa versus highly vaccinated. What's going on? Now, people will say, oh, well, that's because the reporting in Africa isn't very good. And it's just a reporting problem. That's bullshit. <laughs> because I have a friend who's in Namibia. Yeah, African nation always pays attention to Namib um, Namibia, right? So here he is. His name is uh, Coletzo uh, Niathi. He's an MD. So I called him up. <laughs> on WhatsApp. Hey, how's it going in Africa? How's it going? He says, dropped to near zero. He said, COVID cases were through the roof in early 2021. Dropped to near zero in September 2021. Remained very low since then. Very small numbers are dying now. They're not vaccinated. They stopped. Now, here's the, here's the thing. In Namibia, they stopped breaking out cases and deaths by VAX status shortly thereafter. Shortly after they rolled out the vaccines, they stopped breaking out cases by VAX status. I wonder why, if the vaccines were so safe and effective, why would they stop breaking out cases and deaths by VAX status? So you see the same thing is happening in Africa. But in Africa, people are much smarter than in developed countries. They figured it out. They figured out they've been aligned to. So they're not taking the vaccines and they're not getting, they're not dying or, or even getting, you know, their vax rate is 20% because people are like forced to do it. The cases, you know, and deaths, you know, total, this is 2.5 million population. Uh, you know, tragic, the number of deaths because they didn't allow these doctors to prescribe the drugs that would save the people. They said, no, no, you can't use these. We can't use drugs like ivermectin, right? So the stuff is hard to get. Fluoxamine, hard to get. They know about it. You know, 
hospitalization. You know, and they're, the thing about these unvaccinated, this is something that Pierre Corey uh, uh, told me, is that if you go into the EPIC system, and EPIC is the system that's used throughout the United States for, for hospitalization, there's a, there's a box when you um, admit a patient, either they're vaccinated or they're unknown. There's no unvaccinated column. Um, so that's the unvaccinated who are dying. Well, we don't know that it's the unknowns who are dying. We're probably mostly vaccinated. And so det little details like this, those are kept from the public so that they can hear about all of these people who are unvaccinated dying. It's just not true. This is why none of these health authorities not even for a million bucks for four hours. I'm not talking about you win a million dollars if you win the debate. I'm talking about a million bucks just to come to the table, have a discussion with me, sit down for four hours, answer some questions. I got a lot of questions I want to ask because I don't want to be a misinformation spreader. I just want answers to, to my questions. No, no authority will debate me on camera on any of these topics, even for a million bucks. And so after they turn me down for a million bucks, and this is the outside committees of the FDA and CDC, after these guys turn down a million dollars just to sit down with me for four hours and let's have a discussion, I said, okay, I guess a million bucks wasn't enough. Name your price. Name your price. What? Five million, 10 million, $100 million. I paid you $100 million where you sit down with me for four hours and answer some questions. The answer is no. Now, you got to wonder, someone's turning down $100 million to sit down with you for four hours just to answer some questions. You think they might be hiding something. Yeah, it's possible. Or maybe they're just really busy and $100 million, an extra $100 million bucks, hey, no problem. I mean, you know, these people are important people and uh, they maybe no, don't have four hours to spend to, to win a hundred million bucks just to sit down and answer questions. I, I guess that must be it. I guess they're like really busy. And you know, when I have these slides, these elephant in the room slides, and I've offered to give them the source data for all of these, you know, anything that I find, um, they're not interested. They, I never get a call uh, to see any of the source data. We have the data, um, they don't. We know, we know that, that the COVID vaccines have killed um, more people than say for all ages. And I did the analysis, and I did the analysis two ways on this. I'll probably end the slides here. I encourage people to look at this deck. It's really interesting. And I'll, I'll probably just end with the myocarditis data. But um, this is the VARES data. And the analysis that I did on the VARES data, the hyperlink uh, here uh, Vera's will sh uh, show you the analysis that I did. You can repeat that analysis yourself. And I also did the um, risk-benefit analysis using the UK data. So completely separate data sets. And I found pretty similar numbers, surprisingly similar numbers for the number of people killed versus the number of people saved. And of course, you get really young, the numbers you know, just shoot off, they're, they're off the charts. You know, but for older people, it's like there's still not a, a benefit there. In fact, I know there's a 
there is a elderly care facility that is two miles from where I live. And I heard a story from one of the people who, from the family of one of the people who died there. There, was, there were nine people who were given the vaccine, the booster, and six of them died within a week. How do you explain that? Six people die in a week? Of the nine people that you gave the booster to? You know, I think these numbers may be much higher than, uh, than I suspect. Um, so they never do, they never do the risk benefit analysis for any of the vaccines. And I talked, um, I, I talked to Andy Wakefield about this. He said, yeah, there's no risk benefit analysis done for any of the vaccines. Um, oh, and, and, you know, pregnancies, does I, I asked, and did you know anyone who was vaccinated and subsequently had a pregnancy in either a healthy baby or not a healthy baby? Look at all five options with the good, good numbers greater than the bad, bad, greater than the good. Look at this. 39% of people said all the people that they know had 100% bad outcomes after they got vaccinated. And of course, the CDC knew all this, this data very early on in January, but they're like, you know, Sergeant Schultz on, I don't know if you guys see the yeah. Hogan's Heroes in Germany, but, Hogan's you know, Heroes. he was the guy who says, I know nothing. Um, and, um, you know, even the best case paper shows the overall mortality for the mRNA vaccines is zero. So they're saying that their best guess is it doesn't increase, it doesn't improve all cause mortality at all. Why are we giving a vaccine which doesn't improve your death rate? This is admitted. This is in a published paper. And, and of course, the uh, people don't want you to know that the Pfizer uh, data, that, the, that they killed more people than they saved, and they never investigated any of the deaths. So these 21 people who died in the Pfizer study compared to the 15 people in the placebo group, that's 40% more in that group. They never investigated any of those deaths. They just said, ah, oh, it wasn't the vaccine. Those people couldn't have died from the vaccine. But what proof do they have? They don't have any proof at all. And nobody is asking for any proof because the mainstream com medical community doesn't want to know the truth. They just want to believe that the clinical trial was correct and nobody died. And they, there's this VSD study that's the uh, vaccine safety data link. It's one of the, the best, it's one of the better databases that they have. And they show here that your all-cause mortality risk after taking the vaccine drops like it, it drops precipitously. I mean, it, is, it drops such that you can't die from accidents after you've had these vaccines, which we all know is, is, is complete bullshit. Anyway, I, I tear apart that study uh, as well on my website. But here's the, I'll, I'll end this with this because I've been going on for, for too long here and, and you know, let's get into the dialogue. But this is a paper. It was published in the peer-reviewed medical literature. It was published by two people who are very trustable, Dr. Jessica Rose and Dr. Peter McCullough. It's published in a medical journal. And what happens is that the medical journal, the publisher, not the editor who's supposed to control the content, but the publisher, Elsevier, decides to unilaterally revoke this paper after it is gone through peer review, published in the journal, out there, somebody sees it, complains to the publisher, and the publisher unilaterally decides to revoke the paper. Now, you would think when something like that happens, that the medical community 
would bond together and say, this is unacceptable. You cannot modify science and arbitrarily choose which papers you want to appear and which papers you don't want to appear just to fit your point of view. Because that's what the, a, an honest medical community would do. They would say that science should never be tampered with. And, and they would be defenders of science. And they would be up in arms against Elsevier. Why are you retracting this paper? There, they should be complaints through the roof. Everybody should be writing a letter to Elsevier saying, why was this paper revoked? You never told us. You never gave us a reason why this paper was revoked. It passed peer review. How can you edit science? Not a single person in the medical community complains about this. Yeah, you know, Steve, you said you... A little earlier, you gave us the numbers on here in California, um, the children, and you're asking why do they vaccinate children? Because they want to believe the narrative. And now you're saying, yeah, the medical community wants to believe the narrative. Um, I spoke with Paul Merrick yesterday, and he, I, he told me about something that I wasn't even aware of, which may have a lot to do with this. Because there's a bill underway, I think it may have even been introduced uh, to the legislature here in California. And this bill, you probably know about it, I haven't been able to read it yet, but I will. Uh, this bill in essence says that any doctor who's not in line with the official narrative will lose their license. Maybe that has something to do with that. Uh, well, it's certainly part of it. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you, I've talked to a lot of physicians about what's going on. And what I find is that there are physicians who are completely blue-pilled, meaning they're, they're, they're sheep. They follow what they're told, and they do what they're told, and they believe what they're told. And I think the vast majority of physicians fall into that category, and they're trained this way, and they're also trained to believe anything that's in a phase three clinical trial that's published in a peer-reviewed journal cannot be argued with. It's correct. And so they're trained to think that all of these, that, that the vaccines must be safe because it, the safety signals didn't come out in the clinical trial. <laughs> and so therefore, they're trained to think that, huh, this must be just anecdotes, right? And so that's the, that is the problem, is that when these physicians are seeing all this stuff that's happening, they say, oh, my brain says clinical trials showed no safety signal. Therefore, these, I'm, it's just me that's seeing this. It's just that I'm seeing bad luck. And so I talk to these physicians who legitimately believe that there are more cases of myocarditis before the vaccine than after. Now, none of these, none of these people who believe this are cardiologists who have case flow. They all are in their own silo where they have their blinders on. 
and they're only seeing, they're not even seeing any of these myocarditis cases, they just know about the papers. And the papers, when they talk about the comparison group in terms of the number of uh, people who have died, they never multiply by the underreporting factor of the VAERS system, which is 41 or more, depending on what the particular uh, adverse event is. And so, yeah, if you compare sort of background myocarditis death rates versus the uncorrected numbers in VAERS, you might see that one's less than the other. If you correct the number of in VAERS to be the actual number of expected cases, which is 41 times higher than the number that's in the VAERS system, it is, it's dramatic. And this is why we, I, you cannot find a cardiologist anywhere in the world who has actually fewer cases of myocarditis after the vaccines have rolled out. I mean, I defy you to, to, to name me one cardiologist in the entire world who had fewer myocarditis cases after the vaccines rolled out. You know, unless they quit their practice, right? I mean, that'd be the only, only case. This is, you know, I guess this is called cognitive dissonance when doctors see what's going on, but at the same time, they don't want to believe it. It may have something to do with the suppression of uh, real evidence and of uh, reality. Um, one of the things that we just learned is in that trial, in that case that Brooke Jackson, the whistleblower, um, who was um, who um, who was in charge of uh, 25 years of experience, and I think she participated in the trials of Ventavia, which is one of the CROs that the pharmaceutical community turns to when they want um, clinical trials done. And it turns out in that case, one of the most important aspects was that she had evidence showing that Pfizer didn't care one bit about um, good clinical practice. They uh, falsified data, they destroyed their own control group, et cetera, et cetera. And now it turns out the defense, Pfizer's defense is, oh, we don't have to worry about any of these guidelines because we were under a special contract with the DOD, they call it the OTA, um, Other Transaction Authority. And under this Other trans Transaction Authority, we can do whatever we want. That's basically their defense. I mean, that's gonna have to explode in their faces, but that's one of the things that the doctors who you were talking about probably doesn't even know anything about because this is kept from the mainstream media. It's kept from, um, they, they just don't, they, they must not know about this. Things will probably change once this is uh, going into the public realm, but we're gonna have to wait a little while. And it's probably, I'm afraid, um, a um, body count that'll ultimately make the difference. Well, I, you know, I, I hope so. But, you know, they have, the CDC has been very successful in uh, suppressing information for decades. And thimerosal yeah. is a perfect example of that. We knew 20 years ago that thimerosal accumulates in your brain. You know, it goes, it gets injected into your blood from the vaccines and it goes out of your blood. It gets deposited inside your brain. We've known that since early 2020. 20 years later, you go on the CDC website 
and it says, hey, thimerosal gets eliminated from your body, you know, in days. It's perfectly safe. They're lying about this. Being, it's, it's in the peer-reviewed literature. There are at least 13 papers. I think there may be even over 20 papers on this. It's accepted science. We know where the thimerosal accumulates. But they've been lying about it for 20 years. And they've been getting away with it, too. You know, so, yeah. so all of these deaths that have happened, they could say, oh, you know, unexplained, right? athlete deaths, unexplained, you just never were able to explain it. Um, you know, some things in medicine you can't explain. Of course you can't explain them when you rule out the most obvious cause, then of course it becomes unexplainable. But this, you know, this is, the, the whole thing is, is, is all about accountability. You know, uh, Reiner, I mean, the one thing that you don't have that you want is Tony Fauci or somebody from the CDC or someone from the FDA to appear on your show. Now, I'll bet you've reached out to those guys and, and said, hey, can we have you appear? I mean, we're going to give you some great press because you're going to be able to, to appeal to all of these vaccine hesitant people. And you're going to be able to convince them. But the quid pro quo is we will give you access to all the vaccine hesitant in the world. The quid pro quo is we can ask you questions. Now, do you think they'll take you up on that offer, Reiner? No way. No way. No, no NFW. Way. <laughs> you know what and that's all have. you need to know, just, isn't it? Yeah. What we do, I, I'm just reading a book, uh, one of the books that was published by um, uh, Dr. Judy Michaelwitz um, and her mentor, who is in his late 70s now, his name is Frank Rossetti. It's called um, End of Plagues. And it tells you in great detail, mostly written by, I believe, Frank Rossetti, it tells you in great detail about their interactions with people like Robert Gallo and Tony Fauci. And they come across as real bad crooks, people who do not care about human lives, who only care about money and self-aggrandizement, that kind of thing. And so we do have some real witnesses, not secondhand or hearsay witnesses. They're still around. Um, I know that uh, Luc Montagnier died. Um, we had him on our... Um, uh, program on our session uh, shortly before he died, but there are some other people who are still around. There will be a reckoning, Steve. There will be a reckoning, and very soon too. Yeah, well, I'm certainly doing my part to try to yeah. accelerate that day of reckoning. And one of the things that we're doing, and and my uh, uh, there's this thing called the PrEP Act in the United States. And the PrEP Act yeah. basically says, hey, give the vaccines. You're not liable. But you see, there's one thing that they don't tell you about the PrEP Act and the liability is that once you know that, these that you're giving a vaccine which is killing people or should have known, once you know or should have known, the liability protection goes away. Yeah. So we, all we need in America to stop this 
is one attorney general of a state attorney general or one medical examiner. One medical examiner in the United States of America, all they have to do is say, oh, this guy was killed by the vaccine. He died from the vaccine. The vaccine was his cause of death. And in fact, these people who are injecting people are killing people. Now, this isn't just like one person out of 200 million, which they could say, oh, well, you know, that's not really killing people. That's like, it's risk benefit. When I've talked to embalmers and the, the embalmers range from a 60% rate of finding these telltale blood clots in people to a 93% rate of finding these telltale blood clots. So we're talking, uh, now, if this were heart disease, it'd be 25% of people die from heart disease. You can't have an intervention that kills 60% or more of the people who are dying due to that intervention. Now, I don't think it's 93% that are being killed by the vaccine. I think that's an extraordinary number. But the fact that you can have an embalmer who has, you know, for a month, a 93% positivity rate in finding these clots, I mean, that's even bigger than the it's 93%, of course, is bigger than the, you know, percentage of people who are vaccinated, right? But you see, it's the vaccinated people who are dying at a disproportionate rate. So that's why the rate that they're finding these clots is higher than the vaccination rate, because the vaccinated people are dying. And so what is the CDC doing about investigating these blood clots that are clearly killing 60% to 93% of, of people. They're doing absolutely nothing. They're not reaching out to these embalmers to seeing the data and the videos that they have. The CDC is doing absolutely nothing to look at these embalmer deaths. So you know what? Yeah. If you're an embalmer anywhere in the world, you need to go and talk to your medical examiner the local medical examiner. Now, I don't know if it's, it's different in, in different um, jurisdictions. In the United States, though, it's the, you know, you don't go to the coroner. The coroner is, is you know, elected. He doesn't even know, he doesn't know anything about medicine. The medical examiner is the one who's the, the licensed uh, forensic pathologist. All, all of the embalmers who see these clots, because they're the ones who are going to find it when they try to embalm the body. The medical examiner typically doesn't find these clots because he's not looking for them. He basically, the medical examiner goes in and he just cuts out organs and then he takes the tissue samples and so forth. And he never sees any of these clots because he's not looking for them. But once the embalmer puts the medical examiner on notice that they are seeing these clots, 50% or more of the deaths, and the medical examiner has to go and look for these because if they don't, they're an accessory to involuntary manslaughter, which is a crime. So 
medical examiners are now given a choice. They can either go to jail or they can do the right thing. So once they find these clots, they rule that the death was caused by the person who injected them. So they notify the people who are injecting people to say, you're murdering people. And if you don't stop, you're gonna be charged with a crime. What do you think the pharmacist at Walgreens is gonna do when he hears the information that these clots are killing people and the medical examiner has, has ruled these things as homicides? Well, yeah. if he's smart, he's gonna stop giving the shots. And if nobody wants to give the shots in America, there won't be any vaccinated people in America and nobody's gonna get killed. That'll be the turning point. Well, Steve, I, I'm very grateful. Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, we, um, we will have to dig deeper um, and we'll have to make sure that all of this evidence, the stuff that you're talking about, the things that we're learning from the Brooke Jackson trial, um, we have to make sure that this enters the mainstream narrative because so long as it stays within our own echo chamber, it'll, it'll you know, confirm what we've been thinking, but we're, we have to make sure that other people uh, understand what's going on, not just to save lives, that's the most important thing, but also to make this whole thing stop. We've got to do that. Um, so again, thank you very, very much for taking this time. We'll be in touch because we have lots more to talk about, but uh, at this point, have a great weekend. Um, the weather is nice here in California in most places. So uh, thank you very much again, Steve. Yeah, uh, thank, thank you for the opportunity uh, to appear on your, your broadcast and get, get the message out. And thank you again for, for what you're doing to get the message out. We will, we will thank win. Thank you very much. Thank you. We will win, definitely. Take care. Yeah. Vivian, you introduce Archbishop Vigano, please. Yeah, now we have... Um... The famous guest again. We had him on the show last uh, last time, um, on the investigative committee last uh, last Friday already with like a set of uh, three questions, and today he is again with us for uh, some more questions that we have prepared in advance. Um, so I'm excited to. Um, uh, to greet here again um, Archbishop uh, Carlo Maria Vigano. And he's, an, um, he's, apart from being an Archbishop, he's also a diplomat um, emeritus of, the, of, the, of Vatican City, served as um, the um, Apostolic Nuncio to the United States from October 19, 2011 uh, through April 12, 2016. And he's um, uh, publicized two major Vatican scandals. In uh, 2012, he revealed financial corruption in the Vatican, and in 2018, he accused Pope Francis and other church leaders of covering up sexual abuse allegations against former Cardinal um, Theodore McCarrick. So, it's good that you're back with us today, um, Your Excellency. Can you hear us? I think you're still mute. 
Okay, so I hear from the um, from the technicians that basically uh, we can't um, unmute him. So I don't know if the Archbishop, if you can hear us, and maybe. If you could call in again, please, because we can't hear you. I don't know, Corbin, is there a way you can get back in touch with him? Okay, I hear that you have to call back in again using one of the other numbers because there seemed to be some technical problem with this number. Dann lass uns die beiden Videos, die beiden Video, ja. die beiden Videoclips spielen, die wir haben. Ähm, einmal eine gute Nachricht. Äh, Robert Malone sagt, wenn dieses ganze Geschwätz mit äh, Transhumanismus aufkommt. Transhumanism is coming up, then you have to be clear that that by no means can work. Technically, they are not by far not where they say. Um, they are the scare tactics. They want uh, a part of the population to say, oh dear, we have no opportunity, no chance anymore. And the other video is something that I think is very, very important. It's an American senator, an American senator who um, makes a statement on the Ukraine situation. Maybe we can have these two video clips. Yeah. And the logic that we're hackable beings. Now, I've spent a large fraction of my career focused on gene delivery technology. This goes back to my time at the Salk Institute. This was the genesis of the whole idea of RNA as a drug and RNA for vaccines as one of the applications, which was all coming from my enthusiasm as a young scientist, physician in training, uh, around the idea that we would be able to cure pediatric inborn errors of metabolism, um, the Ted Friedman insight through genetic modification. And I, I have trouble reconciling the words that we're hearing with my knowledge of the current state of the technology. What, the only way I can reconcile this, because I know intimately at the bench, year after year after year, with multiple different technologies, that these technologies are not capable of the task that is being uh, um, asserted uh, can be supported. The tech isn't there. 
these delivery systems, whether they're viral-based or non-viral uh, catenic lipid, pulsed electrical fields, whatever, they are extremely inefficient. Former Virginia State Senator. Welcome, Colonel Black. After the fall of NATO began advancing aggressively eastward, finally reaching Ukraine. In 2014, Ukraine needed financial help, and Russia and the European Union made competing financial proposals. Ukraine chose Russia's aid package, which triggered an immediate response. The Central Intelligence Agency and British MI6 organized a violent revolutionary coup that overthrew Ukraine's legitimately elected president, Viktor Yanukovych. The two Donbass republics declared independence, and in response, the revolutionary government of Ukraine made war on them. Over 14,000 people have died in that war, uh, and this, this was prior to the, the uh, actions of, of Russia in Ukraine. <clears throat> After the 2014 coup, <clears throat> the U.S. and NATO flooded Ukraine with weapons and advisors, <clears throat> helping them to prepare for a war against Russia. As tensions mounted, Russia made repeated calls for peace, but the trap had been set by NATO. By late 2021, Ukraine had amassed many thousands of troops for an attack against Donbass, which lies right on the Russian border. President Putin was desperately trying to avoid war. In December of 2021, he advanced specific written proposals to NATO. But NATO was hell-bent on war and dismissed his proposals. Okay, I hear that now um, Archbishop Vigano is with us. Can you, can you hear us? Thank you very much, madam. I can hear very well. Okay, perfect. Excellent. So um, let me just read the first question to you then. Um, Your Excellency, in a letter you sent to then US President Donald Trump, you allude not only to a deep state, a term which is widely used, but also to a deep church. What do you mean by that and how might these structures be related? Catholic Church, just as the deep state is to the state. They are both the corrupted and perverted version of the institution that they all hostage, in which they have infiltrated. The members of the deep church are all the more unknown, the greater their power. The most public personalities are almost always marionettes who are docile to those who pull the strings. Biden and Bergoglio are the front men of the ideology that unites them, a mixture of Maoist collectivism, Masonic liberalism, 
at concilia ecumenism, which nods to the politically correct issues of gender and the LGBTQ agenda. It should, however, be reiterated that the Deep State and the Deep Church are only two declinations of the same subversive dome that has appropriated power by the subverting authority and perverting its ends. In the natural order, the state has as its end good governance and the common good of its citizens. The traitor of the deep state have made it an enemy of the honest persons and the accomplice of criminals. In the supernatural order, the church has its end, the government of the faithful, and the sanctifications of souls. The traitors of the deep church condemn those who preserve faith and morals, and instead publicly praise heretics, sodomites, abortionists, users, assassins, and criminals. But let me be clear. If the delusional plans of these traitors include the destruction of the state and the church, by means of the demolition or corruption of those who hold authority, in both, the one and the other. We know well that while a nation, culture, language, and civilization can even disappear, in the case of the Holy Church, our Lord's promise remains valid forever. Parte inferi non prevalebunt adversus eam. The gates of hell shall not prevail over the church. We must not think that the earthly fortunes of the church should be judged according to the merely human parameters, but rather we ought to have the certainty that the Lord will protect his church ut pupillam oculi like the pupil of the eye. Well, thank you uh, for this answer. I read the next question. An objection from those who reject such a thing as a conspiracy theory would be this. How is it possible that in almost all countries of the world, almost all politicians participate in this charade? Who could have so much power and influence that they could send half the world into seclusion? The objection against those who support the theory of a global conspiracy is legitimate and understandable. Because each of us has been rightly educated to a shared system of values and principle that we still take for granted. 
For example, that the son should trust his father, that the student can place trust in the teacher, that the patient can rely on the doctor to be treated, that those who see a right violated can obtain justice from an impartial tribunal, that the needy can hope in the compassion and charity of others, that the citizen as rulers who have his guardians and protector, that the faithful can listen with confidence to the voice of their shepherds, the shepherds of the church, as if it were the voice of Christ himself. That the reader is not deceived by the gatekeepers of information. That the customer should not fear being cheated by the shopkeeper. That people who dine at the restaurants should not fear being poisoned by the owners. In this system, the authority of the father, the teacher, the doctor, the judge, and the ruler refers to the authority of God, who is father, master, judge, and king. It is evident that the work of dissolution of Christian society, which still is Christian in its roots, even if it now retains only scant traces of its Christianity, is motivated by Satan's unquenchable hatred against Christ. But what happens if, through a constant effort lasting more than 200 years, the enemy infiltrated schools, courts, institutions, seminaries, companies, and trade unions, and gradually conquered the highest level of leadership, taking order from the same group of power that commands every, everyone either by blackmail or reward? In the face of the evidence of such a subversion, we must not close our eyes because it seems too incredible not to have noticed it before. Instead, we must have the courage to recognize that many, too many of our silences have allowed the corrupt city councillor, the depraved parish priest, the dishonest soldier, the ignorant assistant, the unscrupulous doctor, and the lazy employees to be promoted to a parliamentarian, bishop, general, professor, or government official, and thus to have made himself blackmailed. In the end, the ones who are in charge are quite few, and the many who obey them do so mostly out of conformism or twice more pettiness. But these few, and we know this from the data they themselves disseminate, really do have an exorbitant power, which increases, which 
EU adept individual whom they appoint to the highest leadership of the institutions. This is not an unbelievable situation. On the contrary, it is extremely simple to comprehend if we consider who owns the media, who finances political parties, who sponsors international institutions, and who gives the balance sheet reliability reports of nations. They are always the same people who are head of a very small number of investment funds and an even smaller number of representatives of usurious high finance. The names are always the same, and we know who they are. Thank you for this uh, extensive answer. Um, the next question is, it has been a few years since you strongly criticized Pope Fran Francis for lifting penalties against the former Archbishop of Washington, Theod Theodore McCarrick, who is one of the main accused in the abuse scandal of the Catholic Church in the USA. An outrageous act. As a vehement critic of a conciliatory approach to this seeming recurring problem of child abuse, what can you say about the prevalence and significance of this cruel phenomenon in the Catholic Church and Western politics? After my denunciation of the McCary case, I tried to show the link between moral and doctrinal corruption highlighting that the crisis of faith and liturgy that followed the Second Vatican Council could not fail to also entail a subversion of morality in the faithful and in the clergy. Because a deviated faith leads to a deviated morality. A heretic will never be an honest, chaste, sincere person. If he embraces lies and error in matters that directly concern the truth of God, that is the truth about God himself, with all the more reason, he will be able to create his own morality, what the modernists call the morality of the situation which adapt itself to the circumstances. Initially disguised in order to hide its subversive nature, nature, was precisely that of thinking that it could preserve the faith intact in a hyperuranium that is outside of the reality considering it out of date and too difficult to ask the faithful to embrace it in its totality. And in the moral sphere, to preserve morality as an abstract model, letting Catholics choose according to convenience which principles to follow and which to disregard. 
core the conciliar church, the doctrine of the divinity of our Lord remains theoretically valid, but it can be accepted that there are those who do not believe in it, hypothesizing a path, which is usually never undertaken, of slow conversion that supposedly will lead to embracing the entire Catholic teaching. Similarly, abortion or sodomy are sins that cry out for revenge before God, but remain abstract notion that pastors do not ask the faithful to follow as the first step of conversion. So, the thief continued to steal in view of his future conversion, reassured by the fact he does not kill or commit adultery. Those who commit adultery feel reassured by the fact that they do not bear, beat their children or exploit employees. But this is not what our Lord asked. You are my friends if you do what I command you, he said. And not, you are my friend if you choose in which thing you, you obey me. To be Catholic means to make a heroic choice by which we do not adhere to a philanthropic association, but are incorporated through baptism into the mystical body of Christ. And by grace, we are constituted as children of God the Father in Christ Jesus. Medioc mediocrity is not possible for a Catholic, much le less for a priest or a bishop. This attitude of renunciation is revealing of a human vision of the Church, which, according to them, should adapt herself in pastoral care to the mentality of the world, maintaining the teaching of Christ only in theory, as in a sort of archive that no one will ever consult because it is considered utopian and unrealistic. A way to silence the conscience by preserving the deposit of fide, the deposit of faith, in theory, but at the same time indulging lust and sin by legitimizing doctrinal and moral deviations. It is evident that in order to convince the bishop to renounce the integrity of the Catholic teaching, they have to be corrupted in soul because a prelate who lives an immoral life and who thus is often blackmailable does not dare to ask others to respect the commandments that he himself breaks. That is why the infiltrators of the deep church have eliminated or marginalized within a few decades the healthy part of the clergy and episcopate, replacing them with those who are immoral, lustful, corrupt, and heretical. 
their mere presence at the highest level of the hierarchy is the most effective tool to destroy the church from within. Just as the deep state has done in the civil sphere, a corrupt and blackmailable politician will vote for laws that legitimize corruption and vice. And if he does not want to do so because he has some moral scruples, he will do so because otherwise his personal scandals are brought to light. The only way out of this infernal labyrinth is a moralized action undertaken by authority, whether religious or civil. The one who commands must know that this power belongs to God and that in exercising it, he must avail himself of all the virtues required for good governance and to achieve the end for which authority is constituted. The concept of vicarious authority was very clear until the French Revolution because it was inextricably linked to the faith. It was the cancellation of God from society that ipso facto made rulers into potential tyrants because it relieved them of their moral responsibility before God, the one Lord and King, limiting the question of power to the satisfaction of the majority. The same thing happened in the church, which preferred to come to terms with the world and assume its profane mentality, convinced that the church could survive by presenting herself as a human institution with humanitarian purposes. But we believe that the church is a divine institution with a supernatural end. When the bishops and the Pope return to believing, when they return to loving God for how he revealed and in what he taught us, when they realize that every failure, every error taught to the simple, every tolerated deviation has disfigured the face of Christ, has turned his flesh in the scourging, has pierced his hand and feet in the crucifixion, and that because of this our Lord died to redeem us, they will be willing to die in witness to their faithfulness to the one who placed them in authority. As long as they try to navigate with human logic, their ministry will be empty, just as their churches, their seminaries, and their convents are empty. They will, be the, they will disappear by extinction while good priests will continue to do what has always been done for the glory of God 
and the satisfaction of the faithful. Thanks a lot. Um, our next question is, of course, you cannot give a medical assessment in this regard. However, since you interpret the current crisis not only as a medical or political crisis, but recognize an eschatological relevance of the current events, we would be interested to know how you would classify the mRNA injection, which play a crucial role in the whole orchestration from your theological perspective. Yes. The modification of the individual's DNA caused by the experimental serum with new mRNA technology is perhaps the most alarming aspect of this epochal battle. If there are economic powers that have no qualms about targeting the world's population, in order to weaken their immune systems, cause sudden death, and make us all chronically ill, in order to sell their concussions or their healthcare service. On the other hand, there are people who are devoted to evil and who are well aware that they work in the service of a hellish plan for the advent of the Antichrist through the synarchy of the new world order. In the attempt to genetically modify man, we see Satan's aversion against creation taken to the extreme consequences, and in particular against man himself, who is in the economy of salvation was chosen to be the temple of the Most Holy Trinity. Thank you. Um, our last question is, in your letter to then-President Donald Trump, you speak of a confrontation between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Where do we stand in this confrontation? What are the conceivable outcomes of this struggle? What can we, who want to strengthen the light, do? Spiritual events intersect with earthly events. History intersects with the eternity of God. Human events are the battlefield in which the children of darkness fight the children of light. A battle that for humanity began with the fall of Adam, deceived by Satan and deluded that he could be like God. That temptation is repeated over the century to every man. Whenever the enemy tries to persuade him that he can decide for himself what is good and what is evil, attributing to himself the sovereign rights of the Lord over creatures. It is the battle that has been fought even today, after centuries of rebellion against the law of God and refusal 
to recognize the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In the end, everything comes back to this disagreement, to the Lord's statement, whoever is not with me is against me. And to our free response to the love of God, the Creator and Redeemer. To judge these epochal events as a simple human conspiracy aimed at the seizing power would be an understatement. To think that all the proponents of the Great Reset as convinced worshippers of Satan is also an exaggeration. But precisely because of our weakness, which is entirely human, not only in doing good, but also in doing evil, we can move the Lord to have mercy, causing him to confound the design of the wicked and not allow them to achieve their intents. The good are disorganized, divided, and quarrelsome. Why the wicked are organized, united, always unite against God and against his Christ. But the good will be able to achieve victory with Christ and see their common enemies defeated if they understand the spiritual dimension of this epochal clash and decide to take sides under the banners of Christ the King. Allow me to conclude this interview by thanking you, dear lawyer Rainer Fulmich, for having given me the opportunity to express my thoughts on these important issues. I wish all of you in the Corona Commission and all those in every nation who fight the globalist Leviathan to be able to achieve the desired result. And may God bless you all. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. It turns out that we are completely on the same page. Um, I believe exactly the same things you're believing. It's ultimately our efforts in combination with spirituality. You're coming from the religious side, but I think there's not much of a difference. We will win this in combination of these two forces. Thank you very, very much for taking the time. Thank you very much, Thanks a lot. Uh, Mr. Pulmish, and I'm very grateful to you. May God bless you. Bye-bye. Thank now. you so much. Have a great weekend. Thank you, too. Thank you. Tja, Rainer, wir sind am... Well, Rainer. Viviane, that was impressive. I can't, couldn't take note as fast as notes as fast as I should have done. But he really confirms what our experts have been told, telling us the overall picture is clarified from the spiritual point of view, which will probably make the difference in the end. And I don't see much of a difference to what has been shown to us by scientific experts so far. 
or do you see that differently? Well, um, it is, of course, a different uh, approach, yes, but in fact, uh, we can see uh, now that uh, we're faced uh, with a structure, whether it is actually caused by perversion or uh, actually neglecting moral uh, principles, um, or maybe this is, is very much the same thing by just focusing on benefits and 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 uh, money, um, and actually parting from moralic um, uh, pillars and uh, fundamentals, and this is what. Uh, uh, His Excellency described. Maybe we're faced with different structures. I think I have to give it some more thought because um, he said uh, a lot and he also gave us uh, a view of the, the internal workings and this is really shocking. Yes, but in the end I think it is clear to see that he comes from a spiritual point of view and also, and that's important for the oral understanding, he sees this new politic component in it very clearly. This is not something that came up in the last two years out of nothing. It is, as we had thought, uh, something that was prepared over decades. The infiltration in the uh, state, in society, and in church, he says centuries, and I fear he's right. Um, that's the reason why we, according to my uh, opinion, shouldn't spend waste en any, any energy on fighting that system. We should simply turn away towards a new system. But that's what we're doing. I think that is the most important takeaway. And, of course, also the combination of both. And we've said this before, the combination of the attempt to bring truth to light by what we do, by what others do, the legal aspects and the spiritual side, that is going to make the difference. And it's only going to be possible that way um, by the point that all so positions in society is very clear, all church positions over decades, maybe over centuries, have been um, occupied. You won't get through. And the system is not worth it. It's going to break down anyway. Um, they're pulling down one mask other the others, even those who were wearing 10, uh, uh, stop looking good. Well, we do hope the hope that uh, people are capable of, um, uh, of uh, uh, actually uh, uh, understanding the evil they've committed, although through um, they through moral corruption and uh, the the emerging um, villains and bringing oneself into specific positions, it will be difficult. But I think it is possible for every person and for, for everyone. It should be possible to understand that this is the wrong way. And he clearly referred to the hope that you can still part with the evil ways in this life. So things are still very exciting. So a very, very exciting view on things. Well, this brings us to the end of our meeting. And we've already watched our two clips in the uh, during the technical break so that there is nothing uh, left to, to announce. So, Reiner, do you have anything left? No, I just wanted to 
add that basically his assessment corresponds to the combination of the psychological uh, assessment that what uh, Professor Desmond and Professor Rupert have told us, Desmond with the mass formation and Rupert with um, a very, very large numbers of people is severely traumatized. And that's the explanation of why this mass formation works. Uh, traumatized people are easy to manipulate. It's a simplification, but I think that's the case. So, in the end, um, the 20-30% in Europe uh, who are at the most um, are going to make the difference. In the US, it may be 50. In other countries, it may be more than in Europe, but it's going to be this group, the creative group, the group that doesn't just obey, who will come up with something new, and everybody else, well, you can just hope for the best. <clears throat> and I don't think we should put a lot of energy in. If we don't want to fail, then we'll have to reach out to these people who are creative, who can set up a new system. And um, I follow uh, Vigano's assessment here. Um, that is going to be the magic combination with the spiritual side in the end. Otherwise, it's not possible. Sunlight is the best uh, means of disinfection, the best sanitizer. And this is why it is so important that we continue uh, shining our torch on all of the uh, dark corners in this uh, waste cheap to reveal all of the elements uh, uh, working in these uh, heaps. And um, this is, I think, uh, what makes these insights so worthwhile. And to continue our work, we need support. And because this is also a big um, financial effort, we have a new bank um, account. Please check the website. And th this point, I would also like to thank for the uh, great support both also through, um, the, and I would like to thank for the many letters we received and all of the other types of support we've received. And now we would like to uh, wish everyone a pleasant uh, Friday and a wonderful long weekend. Enjoy the holiday. And we'll see each other again next week on Friday. Okay. See you then. We will win.